Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and what to do if your robot dog tells you they're conscious. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Do you like this show, but wish there were more of it? If so, I have some good news for you. Luisa Rodriguez has recently joined the podcasting team at 80,000 Hours as a second host, which means we should be able to talk with more people about the world's most pressing questions and problems uh, than we've ever been able to manage before. You might remember Louisa from episode 116, uh, when she just recently started working here uh, as a research analyst and came on as a guest to talk about why some global catastrophes seemed unlikely to cause human extinction. When Kieran and I decided we wanted to grow the team, Louisa was the person we were most excited to work with. So if you're a fan of the 80,000 Hours podcast, her joining us should uh, definitely be cause for celebration. Today's interview is Louisa's first time in the hosting chair, interviewing the philosopher Rob Long on the question of machine consciousness. Is there something that it's like to be a large language model like ChatGPT? How could we ever tell if there was? To what extent does the way ChatGPT processes information resemble what we humans do? Why might future machine consciousnesses have a much wider range of emotional experiences than humans are capable of? And is the bigger risk that we end up thinking AI is conscious when it's not, or that we think it isn't when actually it is? Those are the sorts of questions that Louisa puts to Rob. For the first time in a while, I got to enjoy listening to this episode more like a typical subscriber who hadn't just done a whole lot of background research on just that topic. Uh, and as a result, I felt like I was actually learning a ton about this really important issue that I hadn't yet had uh, any reason to think much about. If Louisa can do interviews this good right off the bat, uh, both you and I have uh, much to look forward to. After they finished talking about AI, uh, Louisa and Rob kept going and recorded a conversation for our other show, 80K After Hours, uh, this time about how to make independent research work more fun and motivating, a challenge that both of them have had to deal with themselves over the years. You can find that 40-minute conversation by subscribing to 80K After Hours in any podcasting app or clicking the link in the show notes. All right, without further ado, I present Louisa Rodriguez and Rob Long. Robert Long. Rob is a philosophy fellow with the Center for AI Safety, where he's working on philosophical issues of aligning AI systems with human interests. Till recently, he was a researcher at the Future of Humanity Institute, where he led the Digital Minds Research Group, which works on AI consciousness and other issues related to artificial minds. Rob studied social studies at Harvard and has a master's in philosophy from Brandeis University and PhD from NYU. During his PhD, he wrote about philosophical issues in machine learning under the supervision of David Chalmers, who listeners might remember hearing on our show before. On top of that, I'm very privileged to call Rob one of my closest friends. But somehow, in spite of being very good friends, uh, Rob and I have actually never talked much about his research. So I'm really excited to do this today. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Rob. Thanks so much, Louisa. I'm really excited to talk with you. Well, I'm excited to talk about how likely AI systems are to become sentient and what that might look like uh, and kind of what it would mean morally. But first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Yeah, this is a great question for uh, the beginning of the year. I've been working on a variety of stuff related to consciousness and AI. So one I'm especially excited about right now is me and a colleague at the Future of Humanity Institute, Patrick Butlin have been working on this big multi-author report where we're getting a bunch of neuroscientists and AI researchers and philosophers together to produce a big report about what the current scientific evidence is about sentience and current and near-term AI systems. 
Uh, I've also been helping Jeff Sebo with a research agenda for a very exciting new center at NYU called the Mind Ethics cool. and Policy Center. Very cool. And yeah, just to ha- keep myself really busy. I'm also uh, <laughs> really excited to do kind of a technical sprint on leveling up my skills in machine learning uh, and AI safety. That's something that's like perennially on my to-do list. Uh, and I've always been kind of technical AI safety curious. So that's kind of a big change for me recently is also shifting more into that. Oh, wow. Cool. Okay. So yeah, I'll probably ask you more about that later, but it sounds like on top of AI sentience and AI consciousness, you, you're you like, let's add AI safety to the mix too. How can I solve that? Yeah. To be clear, I do see them as as related. You're going to think about a lot of the same issues and need a lot of the same technical skills to think clearly about both of them. Okay. Well, we'll come back to that. Yeah, to start, I wanted to ask, yeah, a kind of basic question. Um, I basically don't feel like I have a great sense of what artificial sentience would even look like. Can you help me get a picture of what we're talking about here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely fine and correct to not know what it would look like. In terms of what we're talking about, I think the short answer or like a short uh, hook into it is just think about the problem of animal sentience. I think that's Mm -hmm. structurally very similar. So We share the world with a lot of non-human animals, and they look a lot different than we do. They act a lot differently than we do. They're somewhat similar to us. Uh, We're made of the same stuff. They have brains. But we often face this question of, as we're looking at a bee going through the field, like we can tell that it's doing intelligent behavior, but we also wonder, is there something it's like to be that bee? Like, And if so, what are its experiences like? And what would that entail for how we should like treat bees or try to share the world with bees? I think the general problem of AI sentience is that question and also harder. So Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of it in terms of there's this kind of new class of intelligent or intelligent seeming complex system. And in addition to wondering what they're able to do and how they do it, we can also, I think, wonder if there is or will ever be something that it's like to be them and if they'll have experiences, if they'll have something like pain or pleasure. It's a natural question to occur to people. And it's it's occurred to me, and I've been trying to work on it in the past couple of years. Yeah, I guess I, I have almost even more basic question, which is like, yeah, when we talk about AI sentience, both kind of in the short term and in the long term, are we talking about like a thing that looks like my laptop that has like a code on it that like has been coded to have some kind of feelings or experience? Yeah, sure. I think I use the term artificial sentience. So like very Mm -hmm. generally, it's just like things that are made out of different stuff than us. And in particular, silicone and like Mm -hmm. the computational hardware that we run these things on. Could things built out of that and running computations on that have experiences? So like the most straightforward case to imagine would probably be a robot because there you can Mm -hmm. kind of clearly... Think about what the the physical system is that you're trying to ask if it's sentient. Things are a lot kind of more complicated with the more disembodied AI systems of today, like ChatGPT, because there it's like uh, it's like a virtual agent in a certain sense. And brain emulations would also be like virtual agents. But I think for all of those, you can ask at some level of description or some way of carving up the system. Like, is there any kind of subjective experience here? Is there consciousness here? Is there sentience here? Yeah, yeah, cool. Jumping in quickly to distinguish between what we're calling phenomenal consciousness or consciousness in this episode, which is basically the experience of having a subjective experience 
as opposed to something like, I don't know, blood pumping through my body, like that's happening, but I'm not uh, subjectively conscious of it. In contrast with, I don't know, like the feeling of the sun on my face or something, which um, I can't have a subjective experience of. And then we're also using the term sentience. And when we say sentience, we mean having either positive or negative experiences. So it's a type of conscious experience that's um, in particular either positive or negative, like pain or pleasure. Yeah, I guess the reason I'm asking is because, yeah, I think I just have like for a long time had this sense that like when people use the term digital minds or artificial sentience, I have like some vague images that kind of come from sci-fi, but I mostly feel like I don't even know what we're talking about. But it sounds like it could just look like a bunch of different things. And the like core of it is something that is sentient in maybe a way similar, maybe a way that's pretty different to humans, but that exists uh, not in biological form, but in made up in some in some grouping that's made up of silicone. Yeah, right? and, and I should say, I, I guess like silicon is not like that deep here. Um, sure, but sure. Yeah, something having to do with like running on computers, running on GPUs. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I could slice and dice it. And we, you could get in all sorts of philosophical like classification terms for things. But yeah, that's the general thing I'm pointing at. And I in particular have been working on the question of AI systems. So the questions about like whole brain emulations, I think would be different because we would have something mm-hmm. that at some level of description is extremely similar to the human brain by definition. And then you could wonder about whether it matters that it's an emulated brain. Um, and people have wondered about that. In the case of AIs is, you know, even harder because not only are they made on different stuff and maybe somewhat virtual, they also are kind of strange and not necessarily working uh, along the same principles as the, the human brain. Right, right. Okay. That makes sense. I've heard the case that if there are AI systems that become sentient, there's a risk of creating kind of astronomical amounts of suffering. I still have a really hard time understanding what that might concretely look like. Um, can you give, yeah, a kind of concrete example uh, scenario where where that's the case? Yeah, so before getting to the like astronomical cases, I'll start with a more concrete case, maybe of just one system. So you can imagine that a robot has been created by a company or by some researchers And as it happens, it registers damage to its body and processes it in the way that, as it turns out, is relevant to like having an experience of unpleasant pain. And maybe we don't realize that because we don't have good theories of what's going on in the robot or what it takes to feel pain. In that case, you can imagine that thing having bad, a bad time because we don't realize it. Right. Uh, right. You could also imagine this thing being like rolled out and now we're economically dependent on systems like this. And now we have an incentive not to care and not to think too hard about whether it might be having a bad time. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that seems like something that could happen. Yeah, Um, and that could happen because, I mean, there's some reason why it's helpful to have the robot recognize that it's sustained damage. It can like be like, help, I'm broken. I need someone to fix my part. So that's like something that you can imagine, like, might get programmed in. And then like, it is just kind of wild to me that like, we don't understand what the robot might be experiencing well enough to know like that thing is pain. But like, in theory, that's possible. Just like they're that it's kind of that black boxy to us. 
Yeah, so it might be a little bit less likely with a robot. Yeah. But now you can imagine more abstract or alien ways of feeling bad. So I focus on pain because it's like a very straightforward way of feeling bad. Yeah. A disembodied system like uh, GPT-3, which we'll talk about, obviously can't feel ankle pain or almost almost certainly. Like that would be really weird. doesn't have an ankle. Why would it have uh, computations that like represent its ankle as feeling bad? Mm -hmm. But you can imagine maybe some strange form of valenced experience that develops inside some system like this. That registers some kind of displeasure or pleasure, something like that. Right, right. Um, something like and that you could be a lot harder. The wrong set of words to come next, and that was bad. And the user isn't happy with the like string of words you came up with, and then that feels something like pain. Exactly. Yeah. And I will note that I don't think that getting negative feedback is going to be enough for like that bad feeling. Okay. Fortunately. Hmm, yeah. But maybe some combination of that and some way it's ended up representing it inside itself ends up like that. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, then we have something where it's hard for us to map its internals to what we care about. We maybe have various incentives not to look too hard at that question. We have incentives not to let it speak freely about if it thinks it's conscious. Uh, because like that would be a big headache Mm -hmm. and because we're also worried about systems lying about being conscious and giving misleading statements about whether they're conscious which they Mm. they definitely do yeah so we've built this new kind of alien mind we don't really have a good theory of pain even for ourselves we don't have a good theory of what's going on inside it and so that's like a that's sort of like a stumbling into this sort of scenario yeah that's not yet astronomical um yeah, so one reason I, I started with the, the concrete case is I think people who are worried about risks of like large-scale and long-term suffering, what are sometimes called S-risks or suffering risks, I think they have scenarios that involve like very powerful agents making lots of simulations for various reasons and those simulations containing suffering. I'll just refer people to that work because I... Uh, that's actually not my like my bag. Um, I haven't thought that much about those okay. scenarios. Just for my interest, what's the basic argument for why anyone would want to create simulations with a bunch of suffering in them? Yeah, so this is my take, and it might not represent their sure. positions. I think one reason, you could create simulations because you want to learn stuff. So imagine that we were curious uh, how evolution would go if something had gone slightly differently. Right, okay. And imagine we had like planet-sized computers. So we could like just literally rerun like all of evolution down to the details so that there are like virtual creatures yeah, yeah, yeah. reproducing and stuff. Right. And also suppose that a simulated creature is sentient, which, you know, is is plausible. Yeah. Yeah. Then all you're all you really are looking for is like at the end, did the simulation output like right. you know, hominids or something? Yeah, but yeah, what, yeah. congratulations, you've also have like billions of years of animals like eating each other and totally. Stuff like that. Yeah, okay, right. But it sounds like there's also just like, we like make things for like economic reasons, like robots or like chatbots. And we don't realize those things are suffering. And then we like mass produce them because they're valuable. And then the mass production isn't astronomical um, in scale, but it's like big and like those things are suffering and we didn't know it. And they're like all over. And we don't really want to change anything about those systems because... Because we use them. Yeah. I mean, for just another dark, dark scenario, you can imagine a system where we get pigs to be uh, farmed much more efficiently. 
And we're just like, well, this is made uh, meat cheaper. Let's not think too much about that. Um, totally. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Are there any other examples you think are plausible here? Or are those kind of the main ones? I guess one thing I should note is I've been focusing on this like case where we've hit on it accidentally. There are a lot of people who are interested in building artificial consciousness. Mm-hmm. On purpose, And yeah. understandably so, mm-hmm. you know, it's like uh, just from a purely intellectual or philosophical standpoint, it's a fascinating project and it could help us understand the nature of consciousness. So for a very long time, probably about as old as AI, people were like, wow, I wonder if we could make this thing conscious. Right. So there was a recent, recent New York Times article, yeah, about uh, roboticists who, yeah, want to build more self-awareness into robots, both for the intrinsic scientific interest and also because it might make for better robots. Mm-hmm. And some of them think, oh, well, like we're not actually that close to doing that and maybe that, like, yeah, it's too soon to worry about it. Another person quoted in that article is like, yeah, it's something to worry about, but like we'll deal with it. And... Yeah, I'm, I am quoted in that piece as just kind of being like, uh, be careful, you know, like, slow down. Um, like, right. we're not really ready to, to deal with to this. To quote unquote um, deal with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, so maybe it happens because it's like useful for learning. Maybe it happens because there are like some reasons that someone might want to do this intentionally to create suffering. That's very dark. But then it could also just happen accidentally, which, yeah, all of which kind of terrifies me. Um, And I want to come back to that. But first, uh, I wanted to ask about the kind of, yeah, flip side of this, which is not only might AI systems be able to suffer, um, but they might also be able to experience pleasure. And I'm, I'm curious how their pleasure might compare to the pleasure that we feel as humans. Yeah, the short answer is, I think the pleasure or pain or whatever analogs of that that AI systems could experience could have a drastically different range than ours. They could have a drastically different sort of middle point. Is there any reason to think the default is that artificial sentience feels pleasure and pain like humans? Or or do you think the default is something else? Yeah, I basically am agnostic about what the default is. Okay. And one reason is that, well, let's first think about why the default is what it is for humans. Yeah, great. It's a very... Uh, vexing and interesting question. So let's start with, I think, one of the saddest facts about life, which is that it's much easier to make someone feel pain than to make them feel really good. Here's a dark thought experiment that I actually thought about as preparation for this. Suppose I'm going to give you like a billion dollars and a team of people who are experts in all sorts of things. And you have the goal of making someone feel as good as possible for a week. Yeah. Or imagine a different scenario where I give you the goal of making someone feel as bad as possible for a week. Yeah. It seems much easier to do the second goal. Totally. Right? Yeah. Um, that is really sad. It seems like in some ways it might not really be like you could still mess up the one week thing. It's just like really hard to make people feel durably good. Totally. Yeah. And the bad is just like waterboard them for a week. Yeah. You, you took it there. But yeah. Yeah. That's much easier. Um, yeah. And like why is that the case? Like, why are we creatures where it's so much easier to make things go really badly for us? One, like, line of thinking about this is, well, like, why do we have pain and pleasure? It has something to do with, like, promoting the right kind of behavior to increase our uh, genetic fitness. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that that's explicitly what we're doing. And we, in fact, don't really have that goal 
uh, as humans. Like, yeah, that's right. not what I'm up to. It's not what you're up to mm -hmm. uh, entirely. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but they should, like, kind of correspond to it. And there's kind of this asymmetry where it's really easy to lose all of your expected offspring in one go. If, like, something eats your leg, then you're, like, really in danger of like having no descendants yeah, yeah, and that yeah. could be happening very fast. Uh -huh. In contrast, there are like very few things that all of a sudden drastically increase your number of expected offspring. I mean, even having sex, which I think it's obviously not a coincidence that that's one of the most like pleasurable experiences for many people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even that like, you know, doesn't hugely in any given go increase right. your number of um, descendants and, and do it for like eating a good meal. Hmm, um, right, right. So if there was something that were like, I don't know, some some tree that made it possible to like have 20 kids in one pregnancy instead of one, maybe we'd find eating the fruit from that tree like especially pleasurable. But there exactly. just like aren't that many things like that. And so those things don't give us very big rewards relative to the things, to the many things, I guess, that could like really mess up our survival or reproduction is that basically the yeah cool the yeah thought. i actually have never i've just never thought about that it makes perfect sense yeah it's like very schematic but i do think it is like a good clue to thinking about these questions so yeah like what what evolution wants for creatures is pain and pleasure to like roughly track those things i mean evolution also doesn't yeah it doesn't want you to experience agony every time you like don't talk to a potential mate. Like it doesn't right. want you to be racked with pain. Right. Uh, because like that's distracting and it takes cognitive uh, resources and stuff like that. So like yeah. that's another piece of it. It needs to like kind of balance the energy requirements and cognitive requirements of that. Mm -hmm. I definitely recommend that readers check out work by Rethink Priorities on trying to think about what the like range of uh, valence experiences for different animals are based huh. on this. Can you give me the rough overview of what they try to do? Like what their approach is? Yeah, so they're looking at considerations based on the sort of evolutionary niche that different animals are oh, in wow. uh, cool. as one thing. Like mm -hmm. there are reasons to expect differences between animals that have different kind of like offspring uh, strategies. Right. Um, and then also just more direct arguments about like what are the attentional resources of this animal like? Does it have memory in a way that might affect its experiences? Mm-hmm. Here's an interesting one. Like, do social animals have different experiences of pain? Because social animals, it's very helpful for them to cry out because right. they'll get helped by help. their yeah. prey animals uh, have an incentive not to show pain because that will attract right. predators. Fascinating. And like, that might just really lead to big differences in how much pain or pleasure these animals feel. I think that's the thought, yeah. That's really cool. It's really fascinating. Yeah. I'm sure everyone's seen a kid that uh, has fallen over and it doesn't freak out until it knows that someone's watching. Seen it. Oh, got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes, true. And that's not to say that the pain is different in each case. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't know and I don't think anyone knows, but um, that's an illustration of the social animal kind of programming. Totally, totally. Okay. So I guess by extension, yeah, you could think that like, the kind of selection pressures that an AI system has or doesn't have or something about its environment might affect kind of its emotional range? Is that is that basically the... Yeah, it's something like we seem to have some sort of partially innate or baked in like default point 
that we then deviate from on either end. It's very tough to know what that would mean for an AI system. Obviously, AI systems have objectives that they're seeking to optimize, but it's less clear what it is to say it's kind of default expectation of how well it's going to be doing, such that if it does better, it will feel good. If it does worse, it'll feel bad. Um, I think the key point is just to notice that maybe, and this could be a very good thought, this kind of asymmetry between pleasure and pain is not a universal law of consciousness or something Got it. like that. Right. Okay. So the, so the fact that humans have this kind of like limited pleasure side of things, there's no like inherent reason that an AI system would have to have that cap. It could have... There might be no inherent reason we have to have that cap forever, which is another wonderful thought. Right. There's this great post by Paul Cristiano pointing out that we're kind of fighting this battle against evolution Evolution doesn't want us to find pleasure hacks um, because it doesn't it doesn't want us to to wire ahead. So like that's one reason we you know at a high level like why we maybe habituate to uh, right. drugs. Sorry, wireheading is like some hack to find pleasure that doesn't actually improve our fitness or something. Yeah, it means a lot of different things. I was oh, okay. using it. Yeah, I was using it loosely to mean that. Okay. Um, yeah, that's maybe why we're always dissatisfied, right? Like, uh, yeah. you've got a new job, you've got cool friends, like, you, you know, you've got social status, and uh, but eventually your brain's like, more, you know, don't get complacent. And, you know, we've tried various things to try to try to work around that and uh, find sustainable ways to boost our well-being permanently, right. different cognitive techniques. But, like, we're kind of, in, uh, this post argues, we're kind of fighting, like, an adversarial game. Huh. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. And then I guess, so I guess it's both kind of, we don't know where the default point is. We also don't know uh, what the upper bound and lower bound might be on pleasure and pain. It might be similar to ours, but many of the pressures that might push ours to be what they are may or may not exist for an AI system. And so they could just be really different. Exactly. Cool. Yeah, that's the thought. That's wild. Yeah, are there any other kind of differences between humans and AI systems that might be in AI systems feel kind of more or different kinds of pleasure than humans? Well, yeah, I mean, one thing I'll note is that I'm often using bodily pain um, or the pleasures of status or something as my examples. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it kind of goes without saying, but I'm saying it that, um, yeah, I mean, AIs might not have anything you know corresponding to that. You know, it would be really weird if they feel like sexual satisfaction at this point. Right, right, right. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, makes sense. But then it's, yeah, it's, uh, and, and you can wonder that we're venturing into territory where we don't really know what we're talking about. But like, I think you can, in the abstract, imagine valence. Yeah. Valence just being a shorthand for like this quality of pleasure, or displeasure. You right, can imagine right. valence, or at least I think I can, that's about other kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, to the extent that there are things like, goals and rewards and other things going on that motivate an AI system, maybe those things come with valence and like, maybe they won't, but like it might make sense for them too. Exactly. I guess one argument I've heard for why there might be a difference in kind of the amount of pleasure and pain AI systems could feel versus humans can feel is just something like humans require lots of resources right now, like the cost of living and the cost of thriving um, and flourishing might just be really high. And I can imagine it just becoming super, super cheap uh, for an AI system um, or some kind of digital mind feeling just like huge amounts of pleasure 
but not requiring like a bunch of friends and like housing and uh, I don't know, romantic relationships. Like maybe it's just like relatively small computer chips and they just like get to feel enormous pleasure really cheaply by like pushing like the zero key or something. And and so you might think that they could just experience actually loads more pleasure than humans could, at least for like given the same inputs. Yeah. Uh, one thing I'll also note is they could also experience the higher pleasures cheaply too. Like suppose they do require uh, friends and knowledge and community and stuff. Maybe it's just a lot cheaper to give that to them too. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and then there's also cases, like you said, where maybe they have some sort of alien pleasure and we're just like turning the dial on that. I mentioned the other case because like, I think a lot of people would be wary of finding it valuable that you're like, just like cranking the dial on maybe some quote unquote lower pleasure or like uninteresting pleasure. But even uh-huh. the more interesting pleasures could be a lot cheaper. Um, right, right. It's, it's, it's cheaper for them to achieve great things and yep. contemplate the eternal truths of existence and have friends and stuff like that. And that could just be some basic thing like, it's easier to make more silicone things than it is to build houses, farm food, build cities, etc. Like you could just have computer farms that like allow AI systems to have all the same experiences and maybe better ones, but like it might just cost less. Yeah, uh, that scenario is uh, possible. And I will go ahead and uh, disclaimer, like I don't think that much about those scenarios right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also not like, Build the servers. Go, you know. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, yeah. Given how like fraud and in the dark we are about these questions, uh, both morally and, and empirically. Totally. Um, but yes, I, I think it is possible. Here's another, uh, you know, another Black Mirror episode, which uh-huh. I think is maybe my favorite is San Junipero. Um, yeah. Have you have you seen that one? I have. Yeah. Do you want to um, like, recap it? Sure. Um, yeah, this one's set in the like somewhat near future and. This civilization seems to have cracked uh, making realistic simulations. And it's possible for people to go in those simulations while they're alive. It's also possible for them to be like transferred to them when they die. And it's one of the rare Black Mirror utopias. Spoiler alert um, <laughs> before you continue listening. Um, yeah, the like protagonist of the episode ends up in a very great situation uh, mm. at the end of the show. She ends up uh, being able to live with this this woman she loves and in this cool, like, beach town. And what I love about the episode is it ends with this happy ending uh, of in, like, digital utopia. And then, like, the last shot is this robot arm putting her little simulation in this huge server bank, and you see that it's just, like, this entire warehouse of, right. uh, of simulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and why is Did it Did you like favorite? that episode? I, I, yeah, I, I think it's stunning, really moving. Yeah, I think it's my, I think it's my favorite because, uh, there's this like parody of Black Mirror, which is like, what if phones, but bad. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, totally. Um, and sometimes it does veer into this kind of like cheap, uh, dystopia, which is not to say I'm not worried about dystopias, but, um. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, what if Facebook, but plugged directly into your brain. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And Holden Karnofsky has a great post about why it's hard to depict utopias and hard to imagine them in a compelling way for viewers. Mm -hmm. And this seems to have, at least for me, like solved that problem. I'm like, that is a, it's not the best possible future, but it's a, it's a good one. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any other differences that you think are, yeah, I guess relevant to 
the kinds of pleasure or the amount of pleasure that AI systems might feel relative to humans? Yeah, now might be a good time to talk about sort of a grab bag of perplexing issues about artificial minds. Um, right. So there's all these philosophical thought experiments about like, what if people were able to split in two um, and you make two copies of them? Which one is really them? Um, or what if two people merged? Like, what do we say about that case? And I think those are cool thought experiments. Yeah. AIs are like a lot easier to copy and like, uh, and a lot easier to merge. Totally. So it could be that we could have real life examples of these kind of philosophical edge cases and right. things that have sort of distributed selfhood or distributed agency. And that, of course, would affect kind of how to think about their well-being and stuff in ways that I find very hard to say anything meaningful about. But it's right, worth, right. I think it's worth flagging and uh, worth people thinking about. Totally. You're right. So with, with copies, it's something like, does each copy of an identical, I guess, digital mind uh, get like equal moral weight? Like, are they different people? Um, and do they get, if they're like both happy, is that like twice as much happiness in the world? Yeah. I mean, I'm inclined to think I'm inclined. To I think am so. too. Um, yeah. Like there's a paper by Shulman and Bostrom called Sharing the World with Digital Minds. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that thinks about a lot of the sort of like political and social implications of cases like this, which, yeah, I, I haven't thought that much about myself. But there would be like, you know, interesting questions about like the political representation of copies. Um, like before there's some vote in San Francisco, we wouldn't want me to be able to just make 20 of me and then we all right. go vote. Right? Totally. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if there are 20 of you and you right. all... Right, you, you also don't want to disenfranchise someone be like, well, you're just a copy. So right. like, you know, your vote now counts for 120th uh, as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, do you have a view on this? I, I think I do have the intuition that like, I have the intuition that it's bad, but I think when I look at it, I'm like, well, no, there are just 12 Robs who are going to get 12 Robs worth of joy from like a certain uh, electoral outcome. And like, that's bad if like there are only 12 Robs because you're really rich. But I don't like hate the idea that there might be more Robs and that you might get 12 more Robs worth of votes. And yeah, I mean, I don't have strong views about this like hypothetical of copying and political representation. Yeah, yeah. But it does seem like you would probably want rules about when you're allowed to copy. Because in the run-up to an election, you don't want an arms race where the population of, the digital population of San Francisco skyrockets because everyone wants their preferred candidate to win. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I guess also if you have to like provide for your copies, if you have to like split resources between your copies, you might even kill your copies afterward. Like you might delete them because you're like, I can't afford all these copies of myself. Yeah, thanks for the thanks for the vote. Thanks for the vote. But of course, if if I feel that way, then by necessarily all the copies do as well. So they feel right? like they also don't want to share resources and are happy to let one of you live. You mean? Well, they're certainly not going to be uh, deferring to the quote unquote original me because they all feel like the original me. Right, 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 right. right. All, and so, yeah. so the eleven that let's say the original you does keep power somehow it like somehow has the power to delete the other copies and yeah I, well they'll all feel like the original me that's the that's another thing right well, they like, will feel like it but yeah. they might not actually be able to click the button to delete the copies but like maybe the original you can right yeah yeah and then that's you're murdering 11 people 
I, I mean, not me, you know, I, I wouldn't do this, but you, uh, do this. you might do, th- you would be murdering. I'm uh, planning right releases. now. I'm scheming. I'm like, yeah. Ooh, <laughs> sounds like a great yeah. way to get the electoral, the election outcomes I want. Um, yeah. How much does emerging thought experiment uh, apply or like how relevant is it? I guess I mostly mentioned the merging case because it's like part of the canonical battery of thought experiments that are supposed to make personal identity seem a little less deep or kind of perplexing if you really insist on there always being some fact of the matter about which persons exist and not. Yeah. And just like splitting, it's like something that seems like it could happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so maybe you, after this election, try to merge your 11 copies back with yourself. And then what does that, what does that mean? Yeah, like does that thing now still deserve 12 votes right. or something? Right, um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I've, I've, I've never thought about that before. So I guess I feel like there are some reasons to think that AI systems, or, or I guess digital minds more broadly, they might have more capacity for suffering, but they might also have more capacity for pleasure. They might be able to kind of experience that pleasure more cheaply than humans. They might have like a higher kind of pleasure set point. So like on average, they might be better off. Yeah, I guess you might think that like it's more cost effective. (laughs) You can like create happiness and well-being more cost effectively to have a bunch of digital minds than to have a bunch of humans. How, How do we even begin to think about kind of what the moral implications of that are? Yeah, so I guess I will say, but not endorse the like one flat footed answer. Okay. And this can go in like, you know, red letters around this. Like, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, you, you could think, um, like, let's make the world as good as possible and contain as much pleasure and as little pain as possible. And like, we're not the best systems for realizing a lot of that. So um, our job is to like kind of usher in a like successor oh my God. that can experience these these goods. I think there are many, many reasons for not like being overly hasty about such a position. And like people who've talked about this have have noticed this. I mean, one is that in practice, like we're likely to face a lot of uncertainty about whether we are actually creating something valuable that like on reflection we would endorse. Yeah, yeah. Um, Another one is that, you know, maybe we have the prerogative of just caring about the kind of goods that exist in like our current way of existing. So like one thing that the sharing the world with digital minds mentions is that there are like reasons to maybe look for some sort of like compromise. Yeah. Can you um, explain what that would look like? Yeah. One extreme position is like the 100% just replace and hand over position. And that's, the other extreme would be... That's like, like all of humans just like decide voluntarily to give up their stake in the resources in the world. And they're just like digital minds will be happier per tree out there. And so... Let's give them all the trees and all the all the things, and yeah, and we're just is, like our time is done. Yeah, like cool. We did our T- job. You take it from here. Yeah, and then there would be a, a the other extreme would be like no humans forever, no trees for the digital minds, mm-hmm. and maybe and so like maybe for that reason don't build them. Like let's just stick stick with what we know. Mm-hmm. Don't build artificial sentience, or or don't build like a utopia of kind of digital minds. Yeah, a utopia that's like too different from yeah, human uh-huh. experience. And then one thing you might think is that you could get a lot of what each position wants with some kind of split. So if the like 
pure replacement scenario is motivated by this kind of flat-footed total utilitarianism, which is like, let's just make the number as high as possible. Yep. You could imagine a scenario where you give 99% of resources to the digital minds, you leave 1% for the humans, but then the, here's the thing is if you give, I don't know, this is like a very sketchy scenario, but if you give 1% of resources to humans is actually a lot of resources. If giving a lot of resources to the digital minds creates tons of like wealth and more resources. Right. So is it something like digital minds, in addition to feeling lots of pleasure, are also really smart and they figure out how to colonize not only the solar system, but like maybe the galaxy, maybe other galaxies. And then there's just like tons of resources. And so even just 1% of all those resources still makes for a bunch of humans. Yeah, I think that's the idea. And a bunch of human well-being. And so on this like compromise position, you're getting 99% of what the total utilitarian replacer wanted. And you're also getting a large share of what the, the humans forever people wanted. And you might want this compromise because of moral uncertainty. You don't want to just put all of your chips. Right, go all in. Yeah. And also maybe to prevent some kind of conflict. Yeah. And also for like, you know, democratic cooperative reasons. Like I I would be surprised if most people like are down for replacements. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that like should be definitely respected. And it also might be right. So that's the case for this like compromise view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, I mean, it sounds really great. And it sounds, I mean, yeah, it just sounds almost like too good to be true to me. And some part of me is like, surely it's not that easy. It just feels very convenient that like we can have it all here. I mean, it's not having it all for both, but it's like having the majority of it all for both humans and digital minds. Well, I I feel like cooperation does uh, enable lots of scenarios like that. Wins like that, yeah. Where people really can get most of what they want. Huh. I mean, I should say, I'm basically recapping a, a an argument from sharing the world with digital minds. This is not something I have like thought that much about. Yeah, I think it's really important to think about these big questions about the future of artificial sentience. But my focus has been on issues that are like more concrete and come up today. So yeah, exploring this a bit more deeply, why does anyone think that artificial sentience is even possible? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, I think the very broadest case for it, or like the very broadest intuition that people have, is something like, we know that some physical systems can be conscious or sentient, like uh, ones made out of neurons can be, these ones, the ones on either end of this recording, uh, and also listening in. And you could have a view where something has to be made out of neurons, it has to be made out of biological material in order to be conscious. One reason that people think artificial minds could also be conscious is this kind of broad position in philosophy and cognitive science called functionalism, which is this hypothesis that the very lowest level details or like the substrate that you're building things out of ultimately won't matter. And the sort of things that are required for consciousness or sentience could also be made out of other stuff. So one way of putting this or one version of this is thinking that it's the computations that matter. It's the Mm -hmm. computations that our brains are doing that matter for what we experience and what we think about. Sorry, what do you mean by computation? That's a that's a great question that can go into the into the philosophical weeds. But for like a maybe like a rough approximation, 
like patterns of information processing is a way you could think about it. So you can describe what your brain's doing and also think that your brain is in fact doing like certain patterns of information processing. So there are theories by which what certain parts of your brain are doing are computing a function, uh, taking an input and processing it in a certain way so as to get a certain output. So you can think of your visual system as taking in a bunch of pixels or something like that, and from that computing where the edges are. Right. Okay. So really simplistically, and maybe just not true at all, but it's something like when you smell a food that smells good, maybe you get kind of hungry. And the computation is like, get the input of like a nice, yummy smelling food and like maybe feel some hunger is the is the output, is a computation. Or maybe it's like, feel this thing called hunger and then like search for food in the fridge. Yeah, it would definitely be more complicated than that. But it is something like <laughs> that. Course. Like you're uh, taking in inputs and doing stuff with them. One thing yeah, I might cool. add at this point, mm-hmm. although maybe this is too in the weeds, I think when people say something like you need the right computations for consciousness, they're not just talking about the right mapping between inputs and outputs. They're also talking about the internal processing that's getting you from input to output. So here's an example. Mm -hmm. There's this famous case by Ned Block, uh, also one of my advisors, who pointed out that you could have something that has this big lookup table where the input is a given sentence. And then for every Mm. given sentence, it has a certain output of what it should say. And it doesn't do anything else with the sentences. It just goes to the right uh, column of its lookup table. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, such a thing would like not be feasible uh, at all. But a lot of people have the intuition that that way of getting from input to output is not the right sort of thing that you would want for consciousness or sentience. Right, right. So like if the lookup table had like an input when you receive input hunger... And the like looked up value was eat an apple. That would not be the same thing as uh, when you receive the input hunger, think about the, or like maybe subconsciously think about the nutrients you might need and uh, then go find a thing that will like meet that need. Sorry, this may be a terrible example, but something like, I think it's uh, a good you're example. not allowed to, okay, nice. It, it's just, it's pointing at the fact that like what you're, the path you're taking internally matters. And yeah, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I will like add or, or point out, as I think you realize, that it, it wouldn't be describable in such a way. And it, the computations would be extremely like fine-grained and complex. And you couldn't like write them down on a piece of paper. Yeah. But, but the general gist is, is correct. Yeah. Is there like a principled reason why you couldn't write them down in paper? I guess there's not a principled reason. It's kind of, I, I think of that as more of an empirical observation that, yeah, okay. in fact, what our brains are doing is pretty complex. But that's that's also an open question. I, I think in the early days of AI, people were kind of optimistic that, and this goes for things with intelligence as well as consciousness, that there would be these really simple principles that you could write down and distill. That doesn't seem to be yeah, yeah. what we've learned about the brain so far or the way that AI has gone. Yep. Um, so we'll get to this later. I do suspect that our theory of consciousness might involve like quite a bit of complexity. Yep. Cool. Okay, so I, I took you way off track. Um, so you're saying that there's this idea called functionalism, where basically it's like the functions that matter, where all you need is certain computations to be happening or like possible in order to get something like sentience. Is that is that basically right? 
Yeah, that's basically right. Computationalism okay. is a more specific thesis about what the right level of organization or what the right functional organization is, is the function of performing mm-hmm. certain computations. Right. Okay. Does that make sense? So you- I think so. Yeah, maybe I'll, no, well, maybe I'll make sure I get it. So um, the like argument is that there's nothing special about the biological material in our brain that uh, allows us to be conscious or sentient. It's like a particular function that our brain serves and that like specific function is doing computations. Uh, and those computations are the kind of underlying required ability in order to be sentient or conscious. And um, theoretically, a computer or something silicone based could do that, too. Yeah, I think that's basically right. So that's the basic argument. Uh, what evidence do we have for that argument? Yeah, I'll say that's like the basic position. And then why would anyone hold that position? I think one thing you can do is look at the way that computational neuroscience works. So the success of computational neuroscience, which is kind of the endeavor of describing the brain in computational terms, is like some evidence that it's the computational level that matters. And then there are also philosophical arguments for this. So a very famous argument or class of arguments are what are called replacement arguments, which were fleshed out by David Chalmers. And listeners can also find when Holden Karnofsky writes about digital people and wonders if they could be conscious or sentient, uh, these are actually the, the arguments that he appeals to. And those ask us to imagine replacing neurons of the brain bit by bit with artificial uh, silicon things that can take in the same input and yield the same output. And so by definition of the thought experiment, as you add each one of these in, the Uh, the functions remain the same and the input-output behavior remains the same. So Chalmers asks us to imagine this happening, say, to us while this podcast is happening. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, by stipulation, our behavior won't change and the way we're talking about things won't change and what we're able to access in memory won't change. And so at the end of the process, you have something made entirely out of silicon, which has the same behavioral and cognitive capacities as the biological thing. And then you could wonder, well, did that thing lose consciousness by being replaced with silicon? And what Chalmers points out is it would be really weird to have something that talks exactly the same way about being conscious, because by definition, that's like a behavior that remains the same. Yep. And has the same memory access and internal cognition, but like the consciousness left without leaving any trace of leaving. Hmm. He, he thinks this would be like a really weird dissociation between cognition and consciousness. And a lot of people, when, one reason this argument kind of has force is a lot of people are pretty comfortable with the idea that at least cognition and verbal behavior and memory and things like that can be functionally uh, multiply realized. And this is an argument that if you think that, it would be kind of weird if consciousness is this one exception where the substrate matters. So I think the idea is something like if you if you had a human brain and you replaced a single neuron with, I guess, a silicone neuron that did the exact like performed the exact same function. And is the reason we think that's like a plausible thing to think about because neurons transmit electricity and they're kind of like on off switchy in maybe the same way that we think or the same way that computers are? Is that what? Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is an excellent point. 
one weakness of the argument, in my opinion, and, and people have complained about this, is it kind of depends on this replacement being plausible. Hmm. Or, sorry, it seems that way to people. In the paper, there's actually a note on, well, you might think that this is actually in, in practice not something you could do. And obviously, we could not do it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and for reasons I don't entirely understand, that's not really supposed to undermine the argument. Huh. Okay. All right. Well, maybe coming back to that. Um, yeah. Is it basically right, though, that we think of a neuron and like a computer chip as like analogous enough that that's why it's plausible? Yeah. We think of them as being able to preserve the same functions. And I mean, there is some, I think there is some evidence for this from the fact that like artificial eyes and cochlear implants mm-hmm. work. Um, like we do find that computational things can interface with the brain and the brain can make sense of them. Interesting. Um, that's not like decisive argument. People who are kind of not on board with this kind of computational way of thinking of things would would probably not you know, give up it. when oh, faced okay, with okay. that. It wouldn't be and convincing to, to them, yeah. And sorry, and the thing there is like, uh, I actually don't know how artificial eyes work. Is it like there's an eye made of some things that are non-biological and uh, they interface with the brain in in some way that allows people to see? I also don't really know. <laughs> okay, I, okay. I definitely know that's possible with um, with cochlear implants. Okay. Um, I mean, I'm interested in that one too then. But that's basically like they connect through like, it's so, I'm picturing like wires, <laughs> like wires going from like a hearing aid into the brain. I'm sure that's not quite right, but it sounds like it's something like uh, they communicate. And that's like some evidence that um, we can feed electricity through silicone based things to the brain and communicate with it. Yeah, one wrinkle is here is it might not be. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's reaching into the brain. It might be doing like the the right stuff to your inner to ear. To your ear, right? right? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so we think that maybe you think a neuron could be replaced with a silicone based version of it. Prosthesis, yeah. Prosthesis, so, yeah. nice. And then prosthetic neuron is is that a, is that a term? Is that a word? Is that how people talk about it? I think people have used that term. There's not a canonical term since it's an imaginary case okay, for now. Okay. Right, right. Um, okay, so you have a prosthetic neuron and you can replace a single neuron at a time. And like every time you make that replacement, it stays like you work the same way. Your brain does the same things. Nothing about your behavior or thoughts change. Yeah, so maybe it's good to start with the first replacement. Mm-hmm. If the first replacement is possible, I don't think anyone would think, oh, no, you have now destroyed Luis's consciousness. Now yeah, she's right. like a walking a philosophical zombie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And then you, this is a common argument form in philosophy. Um, two doesn't seem like it would make the difference, mm-hmm. right? And then yeah, yeah, and yeah. so on and so forth. And then eventually um, you replace all my neurons with the silicone prosthetic neurons. And then I have an entirely silicone-based brain, but there's no reason to think I wouldn't feel or think the same things. Is that basically it? That's the idea. It's if you did think that you don't feel the same things, Mm -hmm. it's supposed to be really counterintuitive that you would still be saying, oh, uh, the, you know, this worked. I'm still uh, listening to Rob talk. Yeah. I'm still seeing colors. You would still be saying that stuff since that's like a behavioral function. Yep. 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 And, uh. Yeah, that's the basic thrust. So then what that is, is that that's at least one silicon-based system that could be conscious. So that kind of opens the door right. to being able to do this stuff in silicon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels very similar to the, like, to this, this ship that, like, has all of its planks replaced one by one. And, like, at the end, you're asked if it's the same ship. 
Yeah, it is similar. It, this this sort of thing shows up a, a lot in yeah. in philosophy, as I said. It's like a it's like an old trick. Yeah. Okay. Uh, listeners might recall the podcast with Al Hayek, uh, right? And he has all these great examples of sort of like argument patterns that you can use in philosophy, and you can like apply to different domains. You can think of this as an application of a like gradual replacement or like bit by bit kind of argument in philosophy. One thing I would like to say, mm-hmm. um, and maybe I'm qualifying too much, but full disclaimer. I, I think a lot of people are not super convinced by this argument. Uh, like Gualtiero Piccinini is like an excellent philosopher who thinks about issues of computation and what it would mean for the brain to be computing. Mm-hmm. And I think he's sympathetic to the idea that he's sympathetic to computationalism, but he thinks that this argument isn't really what's getting us there. I think he relies more on that point I was saying about, well, if you look at the brain itself, it does actually look like computation is a deep or meaningful way of carving it up and, and right, seeing what it's doing. Right, right, right. And so if you could get the right computations uh, doing similar things or doing things that make up sentience, then like it doesn't matter what's doing it. Yeah. What reasons do people think that that argument doesn't hold up? Well, for one thing, it's like you might worry that it's sort of stipulated what's at issue at the outset, which right. is that silicon is able to do all the right sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's this philosopher of biology and philosopher of mind called Peter Godfrey Smith, who would be an excellent uh, guest, by the way. He's written a book about uh, octopus minds. Mm -hmm. And he has a line of thinking where functionalism in some sense uh, is probably true, but it's not clear that you can get the right functions if you build something out of silicon. Because he's really focused on the low-level biological details Mm -hmm. that he thinks might actually matter for at least the kind of consciousness that you have. And that's sort of something that I think you can't really settle with uh, with an argument of this form. Yeah. Can you settle it? So I actually have sort of set aside this issue, funnily enough, since it's like the, the foundational issue for now. Mm-hmm. And I'll say why I'm doing that. Yeah, I think these like debates about multiple realizability and computationalism have been going on for a while. And I'd be pretty surprised if in the next few decades, someone has just nailed it and Mm. they've proven it one way or the other. And so the way I think about it is, I think it's plausible that it's possible in silicon to have the right kind of computations that matter for consciousness. And if that's true, then you really need to worry about AI sentience. And so it's sort of like, let's look at the worlds where that's true and try to figure out which ones could be conscious. And it could be that you know, none of them are because of some deep reason having to do with the biological hardware or something like that. But it seems unlikely that that's going to get like nailed anytime soon. Yeah. Um, And I I just don't find it crazy at all to think that the right level for consciousness is the sort of thing that could show up on a silicon-based system. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, Yeah. Are there any other arguments for why people think artificial sentience is possible? This is related to the computational neuroscience point, but one thing people have noticed is that a lot of the leading scientific theories of what consciousness is are in computational terms and posit computations or some other sort of pattern or function as what's required for consciousness. And so if you think they're correct in doing so, then you would think that it's possible for those patterns or computations or functions being made or realized in something other than biological neurons. Does anyone disagree on this? Like, do some people just think artificial sentience is not possible? Yeah. So there are these views called biological theories, maybe you can call them. So Ned Block is 
one of the, I guess, like foremost defenders of this biological view that consciousness just is, in some sense, a biological phenomenon. And you won't be capturing it if you go to something too far outside the realm of biological looking things. John Searle is also a, a proponent of this view. So there's views where like that's definitely true and it's just kind of a, uh, it's just like what consciousness is. There's also views on which consciousness is something functional, but also you're not going to be able to get it on GPUs or anything like what we're seeing today. And those are kind of different sorts of positions. But yeah, I mean, it should be noted that uh, plenty of people who've thought about this have concluded, yeah, you're not going to get it if you have a bunch of GPUs and electricity running through them. It's just not the right sort of thing. Huh. Um, And that's just like, so the first argument is like, there's something really special about biology uh, and biological like parts that make whatever consciousness and sentience is possible. And the other argument is like, it's theoretically possible, but like extremely unlikely to like happen with the technology we have or could create or something. Yeah. So like for that second position, like most people hold some version of that position with respect to Swiss cheese. Like I would be really surprised if very complicated arrangements of Swiss cheese ended up doing these computations Mm -hmm. because it's just like, it's not the right material to get the right thing going. Even if I think there are, it's, it is multiply realizable. You don't have to think it's, you know, you could feasibly do it in any sort of material at all. Huh. Okay. Interesting. One one thing I'll add, uh, since I am being like very concessive to a range of positions, which I think is appropriate, I would like to note that like large numbers of philosophers of mind and consciousness scientists in surveys say, yeah, artificial sentience is possible. Uh, Machines could be conscious. I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but David Chalmers has this great thing, the Phil Papers survey. And like, yeah, it, it has asked people this question and it's not like a friend view. Um, yeah, like a substantial a, a substantial share of philosophers of mind think that artificial sentience is possible and um, maybe plausible. And ditto like surveys of consciousness scientists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll stick those in the show notes. Cool. So sounds like there's like a couple of counter arguments that are about biology and and just like what's possible with like silicone and GPUs as building blocks for entities. Um, are there are there any other counter arguments people think are plausible for why artificial sentience might not be possible? Yeah, one thing it might be worth mentioning is I'm going to be doing this interview talking about consciousness and sentience as things where we know what we're talking about and like we know what we're looking for and it is this phenomenon that we can wonder about. There is a position in philosophy called illusionism which holds that consciousness is kind of a confused concept and it doesn't actually pick anything out. So on that view, it's like straightforwardly false that AIs could be conscious. It's also false that in a certain sense of the word, yeah. humans are conscious. Right. Well, can, you, so can what, you explain the view of illusionism? Yeah, so like illusionists hold that this concept of subjective experience or what it's like to be having a certain experience even though a lot of people now find it intuitive, illusionists would argue that actually it's kind of a philosopher's intuitive notion and, and not that deep. Uh, I, think, I think they would argue with that. But um, yeah, it doesn't refer to anything, actually. Uh, it's kind of like incoherent or fails to pick anything out. The same way that this is a popular example in philosophy. People used to wonder about phlogiston, which I think was this substance that was going to explain fire. 
And they would talk about huh. it and look for it. But ultimately, it's just not part of our, you know, ontology. It's not part of our worldview. Huh. And they think consciousness will end up being like that on reflection. We'll ultimately have a lot of functions and ways of processing information and behavioral dispositions and maybe representations of things. Uh, but this question, but which of them are conscious, which of them have subjective experience, ultimately won't be a meaningful one. Huh. Okay. Right. So I guess if you don't think humans or non-human animals are conscious to any degree, it's like not a meaningful question to ask whether artificial intelligence is sentient. In a certain sense of the word. Yeah, what they deny is what philosophers have called phenomenal consciousness, which is used to pick out whether there's something it's like to be something or um, whether it has subjective experience or this kind of subjective quality to its mental life. They don't deny that things are conscious in the sense that they may, might process information in certain ways and sometimes be globally aware of that information. They don't deny that things feel pain, mm -hmm. for example, but they deny this way of construing it in terms of subjective experience. Okay. Okay. I mean, that doesn't seem that damning for artificial sentience, I guess. Like, as long as you think that they can still feel pain, and if you think that's morally significant, then, like, artificial sentience could maybe feel the same thing, and that would still be morally significant? Yeah, so this is roughly my position. And I think it's the position of, um, I was talking to Keith Frankish on Twitter the other day. Keith Frankish is one of the leading exponents of illusionism. And yeah, I asked him, like, what do you think about people who are looking for animal sentience? Is that kind of an entirely misguided quest mm -hmm. uh, on illusionism? And his answer is no. And he rightly thinks, and I agree, that even if you're an illusionist, there are going to be mental phenomena or information phenomena that matter. And you're going to want to look for those. You won't be looking for maybe quite the same thing right. that you think you are if you're a realist about consciousness. And I think that's like a very important lesson. I think in uh, like the kind of circles we run in, a lot of people are very sympathetic to illusionism. And occasionally I hear people say, oh, well, then there's like no question here, or it's like a, a meaningless question. And that might be true for like phenomenal consciousness. But I just want to point out there are like scores of extremely meaningful and vexing questions, even if you're an illusionist. And I would still like a theory of what sort of things feel pain in the illusionist sense or have desires or whatever it is that we on reflection think matters morally. Right, right. So is it basically like some people think that the kind of consciousness I think I'm experiencing might not be a meaningful concept or thing. Like, I'm, I might not actually be experiencing that. Um, I have the illusion of experiencing it, but like, there's no sense in which I actually truthfully really am. But like, I still feel like I feel pain and I still don't like that. And that in itself is like still morally significant, even if something called consciousness is like happening, underlying that pain or whatever. Yeah, that's one position you could have. You okay. could think that being disposed to judge that you have phenomenal consciousness, that matters morally. I think a more plausible position you could have is it doesn't matter if you have whatever cognitive illusion makes philosophers think phenomenal consciousness is real. It could also just be if you feel pain in this functionally defined sense, that that matters. Or if you have desires that are thwarted or preferences that are thwarted. Cool. There's really excellent work by Francois Kammerer, who's another illusionist. 
trying to see what value theory looks like and questions about animal sentience and animal welfare look like on the illusionist picture. I think it's a very un- underexplored issue and like an extremely important issue. So uh, put that cool. in the show notes too. Yeah, yeah, uh, plug. Nice. Okay. Yeah, where where do you personally come down on on artificial sentience? And yeah, I guess whether it's possible. Yeah, I think I'm like 85% that artificial consciousness or sentience and here's a real wiggle or something in that vicinity that we morally care about. Um, that makes sense to me. <laughs> is is possible? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, that's pretty high. Yeah, so that's like, you know, ever uh, and in principle. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, so I guess if uh, if that's right and like artificial sentience is possible and if it ends up existing, yeah, can you walk me through the case that it definitely matters morally? Yeah, it's almost hard to give a thought experiment or an argument for mm. the claim mm-hmm. that suffering matters. Um I, I think that suffering matters is something where common sense and a majority of philosophers agree, which doesn't always happen. So like Bentham, Jeremy Bentham, has this famous and oft-quoted passage, oft-quoted by uh, animal rights and animal welfare people, among others, where he says, like, the, the question about animals is not if they can reason or if they can talk. Um, it's whether they can suffer. And it doesn't seem like there's any other boundary that seems like the right boundary of moral concern. Now, as we've noted, you can have quibbles about what suffering actually is and if it involves phenomenal consciousness and things like that. But yeah, it's just extremely intuitive that if something feels bad for something, and maybe you also add that it doesn't want it and it's trying to get away from it, that matters morally. And that sort of thing should be taken into account in our moral decision-making. Yeah, yeah. Um, One thing I'd like to add is like, there's a there's a position on which that's all that matters. And like the only things that are good and bad for things are experiences of pleasure and displeasure. That's not a consensus view at all. But even among people who think that other things matter, like knowledge or friendship or justice or beauty, they still also think that, you know, experiencing pain is is really bad. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So like the other main alternative for this like focus on experiences of pain or experiences of pleasure is a focus on desires and preferences and whether those are being satisfied. Uh So that's a big debate in debates of like what uh, welfare is or, you know, what, what makes things go well or badly for something. Uh, And it's also a debate in like what sort of things are moral patients, like the sort of things that are in the scope of, of moral consideration. And I would like to note a position on which what ultimately matters is not pain or pleasure, but desires. And desires seem like they're much easier to define uh, in this functional way that maybe doesn't make reference to consciousness. And that might be in some ways easier to get a grip on than consciousness. That's the position of Francois Kammerer, who has a paper about how we should think about welfare uh, if we don't really believe in consciousness. I find those issues very difficult to tease apart. So Shelley Kagan has this apt remark that in human life, our experiences and our desires are like so tightly linked. It can be really hard to be like, is it bad that I'm in, in pain or is it bad that I don't want to be in pain? Like those just seem really hard to like tease apart conceptually. Yeah. I mean, I can I imagine being in pain and not not wanting to be in pain? So there are cases where people have the sensory experience of pain, but report don't minding it. So they can really? fully feel that their skin is being pinched or something like that but they're like, 
Yeah, but it's just not bad. So that's called pain asymbolia. And it's like a fascinating that is fascinating. condition that I and there's a lot of philosophical work which is like, well, is that really pain? Are they like lacking some unpleasant quality to the pain? And that's why they don't mind it. Could right. you really have that unpleasant quality and not mind it? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing I can say that pain asymbolia does seem to many people to have shown is that there's a surprising dissociation between the way you process the sensory information about pain and then this like affective, um, like felt unpleasantness thing. And huh. I think there are differences in like the brain in like terms of how those are processed and things, which is why things Wild. like this are possible. Yeah, anyway. yeah. No, that's, that's interesting. Okay, so it sounds like philosophers would basically mostly agree that if AI systems are feeling something like pleasure or pain, that just like probably matters morally. Does that, does that basically sound right? That sounds right to me. Cool. And if it's not, it, it should be. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, so where are we with current systems on this? I guess there's been some public conversation around current uh, large language models being sentient. There was a whole thing there that we could talk about. But just, yeah, from the ground up, what do you think about where we are? Yeah, so the short answer is after thinking about a lot of current theories of consciousness and how large language models work, I think it is quite unlikely that they have conscious experiences of the kind that we will morally care about. That is subject to a lot of uncertainty because there is so much we don't know about consciousness and how they work. I can definitely say there's not like a straightforward case where you're like, here's what consciousness is and here's how large language models have it. Yeah, um, yeah. And I also think I would be quite surprised if large language models have developed pleasurable and displeasurable experiences you know, they're having a really bad time. They don't like writing poetry for us. Right, right, and, right. And like we have stumbled into a catastrophe here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad that people are actually like, you know, raising the, the issue. It's good practice for future things. And there is also the small chance that we have. And in general, like part of what I try to do is just get people thinking about it and, and, and provide pointers for ways of having um, like as evidence-based conversations as possible. Because as listeners will have noted, it's like very easy for it to descend into like Twitter madness and right. complete freeform speculation. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess that was maybe arguably the case with, with Lambda, which we can talk about. But I guess first just kind of clarifying, there are a bunch of different kinds of AI systems uh, that exist right now. Which ones seem most likely to be sentient? I would be somewhat surprised if large language models are the most likely current systems. And those are things um, like GPT-3 or GPT-chat, right? Uh, and Lambda. And Lambda, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I can say more about why I, I think that. That will probably be getting into like the substance of this investigation. But, right, um, right. Well, I guess, do you, do you mind starting by telling me like what other systems are plausibly, like we even want to be asking the question, are they sentient? They're like plausibly closer. Yeah, there's things that, um, there's at least things that seem to do more human-like or agent-like things. And I think that can maybe put us closer to things that we could meaningfully call pain or pleasure or mm -hmm. things like that. Like what? So, yeah, so there are like virtual agents that uh, are trained by reinforcement learning and which navigate around like a Minecraft environment. Mm. There are things that incorporate large language models, but do a lot more than just answer text uh, inputs. You can plug large language models into robots, and it's really helpful for the way those robots plan. 
that's like a huh. really cool line of research. There's obviously just robots, and uh, I, I would like to look more into just, you know, actual robots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which sometimes get like a bit of short shrift, even though it's kind of the canonical, right. like, sci-fi thing. Right, right, right. Um, and robots, like, we're literally talking about, like, things in Star Wars. What's the closest thing to that that we have right now? Like, what's the, like, smartest or most impressive robot? Sorry, you might not yeah, know the so answer, I, but like, what is a, yeah, so I, a smart and impressive robot? Yeah, I was like, I was, I was not being modest when I'm like, I need to look more into that. Like, um, <laughs> okay. I'm really not up on the the state yeah, of yeah. the art. Like, the first thing I want to look at is um, people who explicitly want to try to build more self awareness into robots. I definitely want to see how that's going. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Make sure you know what you're gonna do if you have a robot that can feel pain. Like, are we? Are we like ready for that uh, yeah, yeah. as like a as a society? And um, yeah, another thing about robots is they it would be like more straightforward to maybe see how they feel pain because totally. they have, have bodies and bodies. they're trying to train them to protect their bodies and sense damage to them. And things right, like that. right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you mentioned kind of a, a line of research on feeding in large language models into robots and that having an impact on how well they plan. Is there more you can say about that? It sounds like it might just be a really interesting topic. Yeah, like the cool factoid, which I can't probably technically elaborate that much, um, is my understanding is that large language models have to learn all kinds of abstract representations in, in the course of learning to predict next words. And those representations just seem to be very useful for agents that want to like decompose plans into subactions. It's kind of like in a astonishing fact from a certain point of view that the kind of things learned by large language models would so straightforwardly and kind of, I think, without that much tweaking, uh, end up helping with other agents. Right. Uh, but it's true. Sorry. And what's, is there a specific robot you have in mind with a specific set of goals? Just, I, I'm not totally sure I understand like what plans we're talking about and how they're deconstructing them or whatever. Yeah, we can find the real paper and link to it in the show notes. Yes. Yeah, the great. epistemic status of this is... <laughs> Half remembering some slides <laughs> yeah, yeah, from a yeah. lecture that I saw at a reinforcement learning conference. Right, right, yep. I, I think it was a virtual agent and it was doing things like fill up a cup of coffee in the kitchen and then decomposing that into, okay, get the cup, put it on the counter. Right. Um, okay, that is wild. So you have an agent that's like, get some coffee is the goal. And then you give it a large language model somehow, or you like give it access to a large language model. And the thing is like, how do I do that? And then the large language model helps it be like, here are the steps. You go to the kitchen, you pull a cup from the cupboard or whatever. Is that basically? Yeah, it, it, wow. it, it might not. I, I think it's not that kind of like direct kind of querying. Okay, um, okay, okay. In, in some vague way that I would have to read the paper to know sure. it's, it has that like in its machinery somehow. Right, and, like, right, the right, sort right. Of, Okay. representations and knowledge of the large language model. Got it. And um, the baseline didn't, and it was worse at planning. But then when you feed it in to the whatever processor algorithm, it gets much better at it. Yeah, my understanding is that like decomposing plans into subplans has always been a very hard problem. Huh. Okay, interesting. I mean, if you think about all the different ways that there are to fill up a cup of coffee, and I mean, there's like an infinite number of, yeah, infinite number of like little variations on that. and you kind of need to know which ones are relevant. You sort of need to know how to transfer knowledge from one case of 
getting the coffee to like a slightly different one. Yeah, right. And like, I think one traditional problem people have in reinforcement learning, which is training things by like just giving a score on how well they, well they did it, is it's it can just be very hard to scale that to like very complex actions. And my yeah, understanding right. is that large language models entering the scene have like really helped with that. Huh, okay. Um, Wild. Okay, how do we get here? So I guess this was like, these are some of the different systems that like you could ask the question of whether they're sentient and somewhere in there you'd put large language models but you'd put some other things kind of at the higher end of probability of sentient uh and it's like you're not totally sure what those are it sounds like but maybe robots with large language models feeding in are like a bit higher than large language models alone yeah and so even without having yet examined a like specific system one quick argument is just whether or not I agree with them, there are a bunch of preconditions for sentience that a lot of people think are plausible. One of them is embodiment, say, or uh, maybe another one is having a rich like model of a sensory world or something like that. And there's just a straightforward argument. Yeah, like pure text, large language models don't have that sort of thing, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not hard to imagine augmenting them with those things or plugging them into other stuff. And people are already doing that. So if you're worried about some limitations of LLMs, there's definitely other places you can look. And I myself haven't yet looked, but it's like definitely on my list. Cool. Um, Cool. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I decided to start with pure text LLMs, like, you know, as a base case and as an exercise. Cool. Yeah. what, what, What would you look at next? I guess you said robots. Anything else you'd be especially excited to look at? Yeah, and it might not be robots. It might be okay. uh, it might be virtual virtual agents. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that and maybe stuff that's closer to a pure text LLM, but just uh, something that also has uh, like sensory channels. Um, right. So, like getting input in systems. Sorry. What What are multimodal systems? Oh yeah, multimodal. Modal just means like kind of input in this context. Oh, I see. So it'd be something that's trained both on text uh, and on images. Got it. Okay. So Dolly 2, uh, which you've probably seen, making yeah, beautiful pictures. Love it. Yeah, like that has to be trained on both images and text and because it's like translating between them. Right. Um, okay. And I'm not saying that's my next like sure. you know best candidate or whatever, just as an example of multiple. Right, right, right. Jumping in again quickly to flag that, as some of you might have heard, GPT-4 is actually set to be released this week and it's expected to be multimodal in the way that Rob's talking about here. Um, I haven't gotten a chance to ask Rob if this changes his view significantly on whether GPT is conscious or sentient, but I'm guessing he'll be sharing his take on Twitter at RGB Long or probably on his Substack Experience Machines. So I'd encourage curious listeners to check those out. And so what's the reason that you think that like the more kind of types of inputs or like words and pictures, for example, um, is more likely to result in something being sentient? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think it's like a, a strict condition that you have to be processing more sure. than one thing. Yeah. I have this rough intuition that processing more than one type of thing might make you develop the kind of representations or resources for handling multiple sources of input that might correspond to consciousness. Got it. Another way of putting that is like, if you get closer to something kind of human-ish, yeah, that can make puts you on a little bit firmer ground. 
um, even if it's not strictly necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that makes one sense. fact about us is is we have to handle all sorts of different input streams and decide which ones to pay attention to and form representations that incorporate all of them. Totally. And things like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm realizing, I feel like I half understand what you mean when you say form representations, but like, do you basically mean... I don't know, like what Dolly's doing when it gets a bunch of, when it gets like trained on a bunch of pictures of dogs, it like, is it forming a representation of a dog? And, and like, we're also doing things like that as humans. Like we've got some representation of what a dog is. I'm going to cheat and not answer the full question of what a representation is. Okay. I, I will stick to like the multimodal element. Okay. Whatever it is to represent a dog, our representations seem to contain information about what they look like and what they sound like. And how people talk about them and how they're defined and, and all sorts of things. Got it. Um, is it kind of, of like our text, concept of a dog? Yeah, we can, we, we can use that word okay. here too. And yeah, there's really interesting work from Chris Ola, who has been on the show, mm-hmm. and whose name usually comes up if you have some fascinating interpretability thing to talk about. <laughs> where, yeah, I, th- I think he looked for neurons that seem to represent or encode or whatever certain concepts in multimodal systems and somehow like be, uh, yeah, emerging in this like cross-modal or, or multimodal way. Cool, cool. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. So I guess, yeah, it sounds like there there's like a range of types of AI systems and there are some different reasons to think maybe there's a bit more evidence for some being sentient or conscious. I guess I've heard you give the example of like, the fact that humans have multiple kind of like, I don't even know, what are, what are we calling it? Like we process words, we process images, I guess we process sounds. I'm, I'm kind of calling it inputs in my head, but I don't know if that's... That's fair. Okay. Yeah, um, sure. Cool. So we've got lots of inputs, maybe a thing that has lots of inputs, maybe an AI system that has lots of inputs. Uh, it's a bit more like a human, and that's like maybe a bit more evidence that uh, it might be sentient or conscious. What other types of evidence can we have about whether an AI system is conscious? Yeah. So the perspective I've been taking is, let's try to think about the kind of internal processing it's using or the kind of computations or representations it's manipulating uh, as it does a task and see if we can find analogs to things that we have reason to think are associated with consciousness in humans. Mm -hmm. So the dream would be, oh, we studied humans enough and we kind of identified what the mechanism is and specified it in computational terms. And maybe that's a very complicated thing. Maybe it's somewhat simple. And then we use interpretability tools to say, ah, there is that structure in this AI system. Yeah. I think that scenario is unlikely because we have the great interpretability, we have the detailed thing of consciousness, and we have the exact match, which I think is unlikely unless you're doing a whole brain emulation. Yeah, 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 I see. So the idea is like we figure out that what sentience is, is like this formula. It's like you could put the formula in Excel sheet and then the Excel sheet would feel sentience. Um, It's like when you get a pinprick, you feel this kind of pain or something. And we like know exactly the formula for that kind of pain. And then we find it in an AI system. It like has the exact same, like if given this input, do this process and then feel this thing. And that thing is pinprick pain. 
And then if we saw that exact match, we'd be like, cool, that's doing the same thing. It must be experiencing the same thing. Obviously, it's like infinitely more complicated, but it's like, that's roughly the thing. Yeah, just with one clarification, Mm -hmm. which I think is in what you said. It's not just that there's the same input to output mapping. It's that the algorithm or process that it's using to process it looks in the relevant sense to be the same. The same process. Um, Oh, and that's actually key. Yeah, in my my view. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Otherwise, it's this... It could just be like a VLOOK, uh, like a lookup table. Um, exactly. Did you almost say VLOOKUP because you have yeah. the Excel in mind? I, I do think about a lot of yeah. this stuff in, I'm like imagining Excel a bunch as we're talking. Nice. Okay. And that process might be something like, I mean, is there any way to simplify it for me? Um, just to get a bit better of an intuitive understanding of what, what kind of process we could find? Yeah. So... This is a great question because like part of what I'm trying to do more myself and get more people to do is actually think about processes that are identified in neuroscience and actually think about what those are. So we could we could do that. Great. uh, If you would like. I would love to do that. And like warning, the theories of consciousness are going to be sketchy and unsatisfying intrinsically and and also my understanding of them. Um and, and maybe kind of hard to explain verbally, but we'll link to papers explaining them. Cool. So like global workspace theory is a pretty popular neuroscientific theory of what's going on when humans are conscious of some things uh, rather than others. And let's like start with like kind of the picture of the mind or the brain that it's like operating within. And then I'll say how it then builds the theory of consciousness okay. on top of that. So it has this kind of picture of the the mind where there are a bunch of different kind of separate and somewhat encapsulated information processing systems that do different things. So for example, like, so yeah, like a, like a a language system Uh that uh like helps you generate speech, maybe like a decision-making system. Maybe that's not one system though, but um, also like the sensory systems. They're uh in charge uh of getting information from the outside world and like, building some representation of what they, quote unquote, they, quote unquote, think is like going on. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Like memory? Memory be one? Memory would, memory Mm -hmm. definitely is is one of them. Yeah. And those things can uh, operate somewhat independently and it's like efficient for them to be able to do so. And they can do a lot of what they're doing unconsciously. Like it's not going to feel like anything to you for them to be doing it. Right. Here's a quick side note, and this is separate from global workspace. This is okay. something like everyone agrees on. Okay. An interesting fact about the brain is that it is doing all kinds of stuff, a lot of it extremely complex and involving a lot of information processing. And I can't ask what is it like for Louisa when her brain is doing that right. versus some other thing. Right. So like your your brain is like regulating like hormonal release and like pumping uh, blood your heartbeat exactly yeah i have no Um, idea what that's like i'm not conscious of it that's actually a really i think that might be the most helpful clarification of consciousness consciousness i feel like people have said like what it is like consciousness is what it is like to be a thing and they've distinguished between like we don't know or like there's nothing that it's like to be a chair or there but there is something that it's like to be a louisa and that like doesn't do much for me, but like there's something that it is like for me to like, I don't know, see the sunshine. Um, but there is 
not something that it is like for me to, I guess, have the sunshine regulate my internal body clock or something, or maybe that's a bad one, but, um, yeah, I, yeah. And like, and I do have the intuitive sense that like one of those is conscious and one of those is unconscious. And I'm, yeah, I'm just finding that really helpful. That's great because, you know, we've been, we've been friends for a while and I remember having conversations with you where you're like, I just don't know what people are talking about with this like consciousness <laughs> business. You're it's like, true. And here I thought you were just an illusionist, but uh, <laughs> maybe it's that people just weren't explaining it. Uh, I've, I've seen like a hundred times the like, Consciousness is what it is likeness. And every time I read that, I'm like, it means absolutely nothing to me. I don't understand what they're saying. It's a weird phrase because it doesn't necessarily point you into this sort of internal world because you're like, what is it like to be a chair? And you just like look at a chair and you're like, well, you know, you kind of sit there. Yeah. Uh, Or like, like, (laughs) it's still, it's like (laughs) cold, maybe. Um, Yeah. I can like anthropomorphize it or I cannot, but like even then it just doesn't clarify anything for me. Anyways. Yeah, so so a lot of people do take this this tack at like this is a bit of a detour, but I think it's a good one. Yeah, let's do it. A lot of people do take this tack when they're trying to point at what they're trying to say uh with the word consciousness, um, of distinguishing between different brain processes within a human. So people have I mean, I uh, people have done that for a while in philosophy. There's a somewhat recent paper by Eric Schwitzgabel called An Innocent Definition of Consciousness. And that's trying to like find a way of pointing at this phenomenon that doesn't commit you to like that many philosophical theses about the nature of the thing you're talking about. Nice. And yeah, he's like, look, consciousness is like the most kind of uh, obvious in everyday thinking difference between the following two sets of things. Set number one is like tasting your coffee, seeing the sunrise, feeling your feet on the ground, explicitly mulling over an argument. Set number two is like your long-term memories that are currently being stored, but you're not thinking about them. The regulation of your heartbeat, the regulation of hormones. Totally. All of those are things going on in your brain in some sense. Right. So yeah, I don't know how that, if that points to something for you, but. Oh no, it's, it feels like the thing. I feel like I finally get it. That's great. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, so how did we get here? We got here because you were describing global workspace. workspace. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So global workspace theory starts with the human case and it says, well, what explains which of the brain things are conscious, right? So here's another quick, interesting point. In contrast with the hormone release case, there are also like a lot of things that your brain does, which are really associated with stuff that you will be conscious of, but you're still not conscious of them. Yep. Um, So an example is we seem to have like very sophisticated, like pretty rule-based systems for determining if a sentence is grammatical or not. Okay. Have you ever heard this case? Like you can say that is a pretty little old brown house. That sounds fine, right? Does sound fine. But you can't say that's an old, little, brown, pretty house. Like, that was hard for me to say. It sounds terrible. Yeah, I hate it. And there's actually, like, pretty fine-grained rules about what order you're allowed to put adjectives in. Right. In English. And I never learned them, and neither did you. Right. But in some sense, like, you do know them. And as you hear it, your brain is going, like, eh, like, wrong order. 
you put size before color or, or whatever. Yep. And you're not conscious of like those rules being applied. You're conscious of the output. You're conscious of like this yes, almost no. feeling of horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can't say that. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, that's, I don't know, that's another interesting case. Like why aren't you conscious of those rules being applied? Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Okay, so yeah, lots of examples now. Okay. Yep. Yeah, global workspaces, like why are some representations or processes associated with consciousness? And the theory at a high level, and the reason it's called global workspace theory, is that there's this like mechanism in the brain called a global neuronal workspace that chooses which of the system's representations, so like maybe the sensory ones, are going to get shared like throughout the brain and be made available to a lot of other systems. Okay. So if you're conscious of your vision, they're saying that the visual representations have been broadcast and they're available, for example, to language, which is why you can say, Oh, I see. Uh, I am seeing a blue shirt. Yes, got it. Okay, so it's like there's a switchboard and your visual part is like calling into the switchboard and it's like, I see a blue shirt. Or or maybe it's like, I see a tiger. And then the switchboard operator is like, yeah. that is important. We should tell legs. And then they call up legs. Yeah. And they're like, you should really know there's tiger and run. Yeah, exactly. Or they call up the part of your brain in charge of making plans for your legs. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Fair enough. And that example actually gets to a great point, too, which is that uh, entry into this workspace is going to depend on things like uh, your goals and what's salient to you at a given time. Yep. You can also yourself kind of control what's salient. So uh, you and the listeners, like, what do your toes feel like? <laughs> yep. Like now that seems to have gotten more into the workspace. Tricky questions. Were you already aware of it, but you weren't like thinking about it? Like, blah, blah, blah. But like, that's just an example of attention, you know, modulating this sort of thing. Yeah. Okay, cool. Right. Okay. So global workspace theory makes sense to me. And how do you use that theory to think about whether something like an AI system is conscious? Right. So an easy case would be if you found something that straightforwardly oh, looks I like see. it has. Oh, and we're going to come up with processes that seem relevant to consciousness or like that they like yeah. they can end. Okay. Yeah. And then and then you look for them in. Or processes that are conscious, maybe if you really buy the theory, you know. Right. Um, okay. Or give rise to or are correlated with and, you know, so on. So what's a Yeah. What's an example? It would be something like, yeah, I'm, I'm having trouble pulling it together. Can you pull it together for me? Well, not entirely, uh, or I'd be done with my report, right. but okay. like, um, or done with this line of research altogether. Yeah. I mean, maybe you can just try to imagine trying to imitate it as closely as possible. So notice that like everything about that story doesn't directly depend on it being neurons in a brain. I mean, I, I called it the global neuronal workspace, but let's imagine that you could build it out of something else. So here's like a sketch, like let's let's build five different usually encapsulated subsystems in a robot. Mm -hmm. They usually don't talk to each other. Like, like let's language, also build like visual. Mm -hmm. Yep. Let's also make this kind of switchboard mechanism. Let's have procedures by which the things kind of compete for entry. Here's a historical tidbit. Global workspace theory actually was first formulated 
out of inspiration by AI architecture systems. Like, oh, uh, wow. Like back in the olden days. So it wasn't, it, people didn't come up with it to explain consciousness. They came up with it to make a structure that could be. Handle a bunch of different information, like in a flexible Computationally. Way. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. It's called like the blackboard architecture. Huh. Where okay. like the blackboard's like where you can where you you know, put the representations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, people developed that for AI. And then some neuroscientists and cognitive scientists, uh, Bernard Bars is the original formulator of this, uh, was like, hey, what if the what if the brain what works if like that? And that's what explains consciousness. That's really cool. And now it's going full circle, right? Because people are like, oh, what if we could look for this in AIs? And some people, most notably... Yashua Bingio uh, and some of his collaborators, and then also a guy called uh, Rufin Van Rollen and also Ryota Kanai. They're trying to implement global workspace as it's found in the neuroscience into AI systems to make them like better at thinking about stuff. So it's this interesting, you know, loop. Little loop, totally. Okay, and so the idea here in thinking about AI, uh, or sorry, artificial sentience is you have a theory of consciousness. Uh, in this case, for example, global workspace theory, and you spell it out and then you look for AI systems that work like that. And, or like, you're like, does this AI system work like that? And if it does work like that, that's some evidence that it's has similar levels of consciousness to humans or something. Yeah. To the extent that you take the theory seriously, to the extent that you don't have objections to it being done artificially. Totally, right, right. We can link to this. An example of this is this uh, paper by uh, Giuliani et al. It's called The Perceiver Architecture is a Functional Global Workspace. And in that paper, they look at a model from DeepMind um, called Perceiver, and there's one called Perceiver IO, like a successor. And this system was not developed with any theory of consciousness in mind, but Giuliani et al. say, if you look at the way it works, it's doing something like global workspace as found in this theory. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, so how how confidently can we just say if you put some weight on global workspace theory being true, then you should put some weight on uh, perceiver IO being conscious? I mean, I would endorse that claim. And okay. then the, 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 you know, then the question is how much weight and... Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, how much weight? I mean, what do they, yeah, what do they conclude in the paper? Yeah, so... In the paper itself, they're not claiming this thing is conscious. And also in like talking to them, they're not like, no, 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 this is not like a an argument that it's conscious. And their reasons for that are, one, we're not sure that the theory is true. And this is like, yeah, this is getting to all of the complications of this methodology uh, okay. that I'm talking about. Right. And I'm glad we went through at least some fake, straightforward cases before getting into all these weeds. Yeah. It's this issue I mentioned before of you're never going to have an exact match. Right. So, uh-huh. so there are differences between what Perceiver IO is doing and uh, whatever you'd imagine a global workspace process to look like. Exactly. Do you know what some of those differences are? Yeah. So like one, maybe the most obvious one, and this is like a longstanding issue in global workspace theory, is do you have to have the exact same list of subsystems? Oh. Like in humans, huh. it's language decision making, sensory things. Okay. Or do you just have to have a few of them? Or do you just have to have multiple systems? Mm-hmm. Right. This question comes up in, in animal sentience as well. Um, oh, that's interesting. So this is going to be like the tricky, vexing question with all of these. 
is for any theory of consciousness, our data is going to come from humans. Right. And it might explain pretty well what in humans is sufficient for consciousness, but how are we supposed to extrapolate that to different kinds of systems? And at what point are we like, that's similar enough? Right. Yeah. One thing I'll note is, is like illusionists are, are like, yeah, you're looking for something you're not going to find. There's just going to be kind of a spectrum of cases, different degrees of similarity between different ways of processing information. And there's not going to be some thing consciousness that you definitely get if you have like 85% similarity to your existing theory from humans. And do they, would they basically believe that there are varying degrees of like things like valenced experience, so pleasure and suffering, and also varying degrees of things like access to memories or ways of thinking about certain things they're seeing in the environment or certain threats or something. Like there are ways of thinking about those that might be kind of like the human one, which kind of sounds like sentences in your head, or they might be different, but either way, those are all, it's all kind of spectrumy and it's all kind of, um, like there isn't one thing that's consciousness. There's just like a bunch of systems and processes that different animals and or non-human animals and humans might have. And none of those are like yes conscious or no conscious. Exactly. Because for the illusionist, it's a, kind of a confused concept. Even if you do believe in consciousness, you might also think there are cases where it's like indeterminate or or vague. But if you believe in consciousness in this robust sense, it's very hard to make sense of what it would be to have a vague case of consciousness. I see. Yeah, some people have the intuition that there's something it's like to be doing something or, or there's not. Like to be conscious is to like have a subjective point of view. And that's not the sort of thing you can like kind of have. Right, right. Interesting. On Perceiver.io. Right. Um, yeah, so I can bring us back to Perceiver.io. Please do. Um, So that was just making the general point that it's very hard to extrapolate from the human case. Yes, right, 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 right. And so does Perceiver.io basically just have some systems, but not all the systems or not all the same systems as at least global workspace theory thinks that humans do? Yeah, so it has has different systems and it just operates in different ways. So like it's um, one difference, if I'm remembering correctly from talking to the authors of this paper is... The broadcast mechanism that Perceiver IO has is not as all or nothing as the human one is posited to be. Oh, interesting. And the human one, it is kind of a switchboard, or it's hypothesized to be. Right. It's like, there is a tiger. I'm broadcasting that to the other systems so they can take an appropriate action and not like a subtle flicker of maybe there's a tiger and you want to quietly broadcast that or something. There's just like exactly, you're yeah. Telling there's them nothing or you're not. that's yeah. That's my rough understanding of something that people say about global broadcast is that it does have this sort of step function like property. And also, if I'm remembering correctly, people are saying, "Well, Perceiver IO doesn't quite have that." Okay, and then by step function, you mean in contrast to something more continuous that kind of increases gradually, or like you can have it in degrees, whereas step function is either like uh, a little or a lot, or like yes or no, and yeah, I guess Perceiver IO doesn't quite have that because it has a gradient or, yeah, what what's going on? Yeah, everything is getting shared to everything. It's And it, it's global workspace-like, as I understand it, in that there are things that like really get shared a lot, but there's still nothing. Right. Um, 
Got it. So Perceiver.io has a bunch of systems that are telling all of the other systems all of their things. But sometimes they're like, it's a bit hard for me to imagine how they're telling some things more strongly than others. But there is some process that's like, I'm yelling about this thing. Uh, And another process that's like, I'm whispering about the thing. Yeah, so... In the context of deep learning, what you know, yelling about the tiger is going to look like is going to be a matter of like the strength of certain weights that connect different parts of things. So yeah, like you know, in deep learning, like the kind of fundamental building block of all sorts of different systems is going to be nodes that are connected to other nodes, and there will be like a strength of connection between two nodes, which is like how strong the output from one node to another will be. What training these systems usually is, is adjusting those weights. So yeah, like this is this still is a long way from you know explaining what's going on in Perceiver IO, but in case it's helpful to like at least know that that's what it would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Thank you. Cool. Yeah, I feel like I just do now basically understand at least the kind of thing you'd be doing if you're looking for consciousness in an AI system. It's like, what do we think consciousness is? We have at least one theory that we've talked about. We look for that thing that we think consciousness is, or at least the processes that we think explain the consciousness in an AI system. And if we find something that looks like them, that's some evidence uh, that it's conscious. If it looks a lot like that thing or that process, then that's a bit stronger evidence. Yeah, like that's an excellent encapsulation. Okay, so one way of thinking about whether a particular AI system is conscious or sentient is by taking a theory of consciousness and then looking for the exact same processes or like similar processes uh, in the AI system. And that makes a bunch of sense. How confident are we in the philosophy of consciousness and and these theories like global workspace theory? I, I think we've made a lot of progress in the scientific understanding of consciousness in the last 20 years, but we're definitely nowhere near consensus. And I think basically everyone in consciousness science agrees with that. There's a spectrum of people from more optimistic to more pessimistic. Some people think, you know, we're just really far away from having anything like a scientific theory of consciousness. Other people think we're well on the way and the methodology has improved and we're seeing some convergence and we're getting better experiments. But even among the most optimistic, I don't think anyone that I've ever talked to uh, in the neuroscience of consciousness is like, yeah, we've, you know, we've nailed it. Uh, take this theory off the shelf. Here's exactly <laughs> what it says. It predicts all of the things that we would like to know about human and animal consciousness. Let's apply it to AIs. Right. That's like the dream case that I have in the back of my mind when I work on this stuff as kind of like a an orienting ideal case, but that's definitely not the situation. Right, right. And when you say like, take this theory off the shelf and confirm it predicts all the things we'd we'd want it to predict, what, what do you mean? Like, what would it be predicting? Yeah, so there's just a lot of data about what it's like to be a conscious human and how that interacts with our other mental processes that any theory of consciousness is going to need to say how that happens and what the patterns are. So just some examples are... Yeah, go ahead. Like, why is the human visual field as rich as it is? Um, 
So here's a, here's an interesting fact about about vision. People have the impression that their peripheral vision is a lot more detailed than it actually is. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like focusing on it now and I, I'm getting like blur. But yeah, I would have I would have guessed that uh, I'd get like the pattern of my curtain and not just the like vague color. That's interesting that you can kind of tell that by focusing your attention on it. I think a lot of people, myself included, wouldn't have known even from focusing on it. I only knew this when I read about the experiments and when I think at some point I saw Daniel Dennett actually demonstrate this, where it's something like a playing card in your periphery. Uh, You actually can't tell if it's black or red nearly as reliably as you would think you can from your naive impression. Black or red even you can't tell. Yeah, listeners should look that up to make sure that's uh, that's actually true. But <laughs> sure, it's something sure. like a, there's a surprising lack of discrimination, which you wouldn't really know if you just kind of thought of like. In, no, totally. I feel like I have a full movie screen of filled right. in detail. Yeah, yeah, panorama. Vision. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, maybe it's just because I know my curtains really well. So my curtain is to my left, and like I know exactly what the pattern should look like without looking at it. I'm just getting roughly green, even though it has a bunch of blue designs on it. So that's kind of wild. Right. Your your brain has a, yeah, your brain has a model and is kind of filling it in and saying, yeah, like I've got the general idea. Right. It's roughly green. We don't need to, we don't need to fill that in anymore. If we, if we need to know it's there, we'll, we'll look at it directly. And I should flag, as with all these issues, there's all sorts of philosophical debates about like what's really going on in the periphery of vision. I'm sure people would dispute the way I described it. But there's something, Uh there's like obviously some sort of phenomenon there that would want to be explained. Right, right. Yeah, like here's another example of filling in. You have a blind spot. Uh, We all do. It's And it's because of the way your eye is wired and the fact that the retinal nerve has to like go back into the brain. Um, Yeah. I might have slightly described the the neurobiology there. But um, the key point for our purposes, it doesn't seem to you like there's a part of your visual field that you're missing. You're filling it in, your eyes are moving around all the time and like getting it. But because your brain is not like hungry for information there, it doesn't feel like there's information missing there because it knows there shouldn't be. Right, right. Okay, cool. So bringing it back to like, yeah, I guess consciousness, how do we take the observation that, for example, uh, our peripheral vision is blurry, but we don't really perceive it that way as data that's like something we can or something theories of consciousness can make predictions about. Yeah. So like your theory of consciousness should ideally spell out in detail what sort of conscious creature would have a conscious experience that is that is like this, where they have a sense of more detail that in fact exists. Wild. Maybe I'll just go ahead and list some more things your theory of consciousness should explain. Yeah, great. And a lot of this is going to be so every day that uh, you might forget that it needs to be explained. But like, <laughs> right. what makes people fall asleep and why are you not conscious and dreamless sleep? How do dreams work? Those are a certain kind of conscious experience. These patterns we can find in a laboratory of like how quickly you can flash stuff to make it get kind of registered but not be conscious. Like what's what sort of architecture would predict that? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's like, if you flicker lights really fast in front of people, at some point they don't register them because they're too fast? Yeah, there are like various interesting methods of flashing things in certain ways or presenting them in certain ways such that we can tell that the visual information has in some sense gotten into the brain for processing, but you interrupt some of the processing that seems to be required for people to be able to remember it or talk about it and arguably interrupts the processing 
that allows them to be conscious of it. And you can imagine, right, that some theories of what the mechanisms for consciousness are would be able to explain that in terms of, okay, well, I identify that this process is key for consciousness, and we have reason to believe that that process is what's being interfered with in this case. Right. Is there, yeah, is there a way we can make that more concrete with an example? Like, is there some example that neuroscience has found where, like, we know that a human has, like, taken in some something in their visual field, but they're not conscious of it? Well, the example of blindsight is a particularly interesting one. What so, is blindsight? Yeah, so blindsight is this phenomenon, and as you can tell from the name, it's like the, a weird mixture of sightedness and blindness. And the way that mixture goes is um, this occurs in, in people who have had some kind of brain lesion or, or some kind of uh, damage. There can be people who, if you put a bunch of obstacles in a hallway, they will walk down the hallway and be able to dodge those obstacles. But they actually will claim that they are not visually aware of any obstacles. That's crazy. That's insane. And because our brain likes to make sense of things, they'll also just be like, well, yeah, what are you talking about? It's just like a hallway. I just I just walked down it. Um, so we know that they must have registered it or they would have bumped into things. But we also know that they don't have at least the normal kind of consciousness that allows me and you to talk about what it is that we're saying and, and remember what it is that we have recently seen. And sorry, what is explaining this? Like, maybe we don't know exactly what's happening in consciousness, but like, do these people have like some neurological condition that causes them to not know that there are obstacles in a hallway they're walking through? Yeah, it's, it's this is usually like some kind of not normal functioning caused by a brain lesion or something like that. And so, wow. I mean, this is going to be... And their experience is basically, of, they, they experience feeling blind or partially blind or something? Yeah, it's usually in some part of their visual field, I think. I see. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. Not 100% on, sure on the details, but it's something like that. That's insane. That's really, really wild. There are also conditions where, yeah, like one half of your visual field will be like this. Um, and very is often... Is this like with split brain cases? Um, that's like a related kind of case. Um, oh, okay. What's the deal with split brain? Is it is it the kind of thing that maybe consciousness theories would want to make predictions about? Oh, absolutely. And I think I think that split brain was like one of the kind of interesting variations of conscious experience that like helped people develop different theories of consciousness. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Cool. Do you mind going into that a bit then? Yeah, I I was really into this like when I was first getting into philosophy of mind and I really? I, I like yeah, there's there's like a philosophical subliterature of like, what should we think about split brain patients? And are there actually two experiencing subjects? Is there one experiencing subject that like switches? Thomas Nagel has an interesting argument that there's no determinate number of experiencing subjects. Um, <laughs> but yeah, okay. the, like split brain, like 101, which I can't remember, is that there's a procedure that is not often done anymore because it's a very drastic one. And it's severing the corpus callosum, which is this structure that connects the two hemispheres of your brain. And this was often done as like a last resort for people who are having very severe seizures. Okay, yep. And then what you see is that in normal everyday life, these patients do not notice anything interestingly different about their experience. But in the lab, if you carefully control which 
half of the visual field things are being presented into, you can get very strange patterns of one half of the brain having some information, the other half of the brain lacking that information. Wild. And yeah, what like, yeah, what's an example of something that where they could where one half the brain knows something the other half doesn't? Yeah. So again, I might misdescribe some of the details, but this like broad finding is something that, that listeners should check out. You know, there's like specialization in, in each half of the brain between like planning and language and things like that. So I think you can tell, quote unquote, one side of the brain, get up from your chair and that will be registered and the decision will be made to get up from the chair. Oh, wow. Okay. So one half of the brain will be like, I've been told to get up and I'm going to do that. And then, and then the person stands up. Yeah. And then you ask them, why did you stand up? And something, something, the part connected to like language or explaining your actions doesn't have access to this information. Oh my and, God. and so they'll say, oh, um, yeah, I wanted to stretch my legs or I need to go to the bathroom. Right. <laughs> That's crazy. I feel like it's one level of crazy that one half of the brain could just not know. And then it's a whole nother level that it's going to make up a reason that it's like, I wanted to stretch my legs. I think that's like a, a wonderful and somewhat disturbing feature of the human brain and the human experience that I think you often oh, see in conditions like this is people will have stories that make sense of what is happening to them. And it's kind of, you don't easily form the hypothesis, oh, wow, I just stood up and I have no idea why. I think that's like a very surprising hypothesis and and like a hard one to, right. to take in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. Okay, cool. Well, so so I guess it sounds like, uh, yeah, philosophers have spent time thinking about what this even means about consciousness. Um, is there anything they agree on? Or what are some like ideas or theories or explanations that have been proposed for split brain in particular? So when neuroscientists look at cases like this, that's going to constrain their theories of what neural mechanisms are responsible for consciousness and what parts of the brain they're in and things like that. And I think this happens a lot in, in science. It's when things break that you can get a better clue as to what the key mechanisms are. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I want to emphasize that there are these neuroscientific theories which are in the business of let's collect data and make hypotheses about what brain structures are responsible. The philosophy of this stuff is like, tightly linked with that because all of these questions are very philosophical and it takes, in my opinion, a lot of philosophical clarity to handle this data in the appropriate way and make sure your theory makes sense. But I do want to draw a distinction between making a neuroscientific theory of what's the relevant mechanism, you know, how fast do these neurons fire and so on, and what philosophers are often concerned with, or like a different set of questions that philosophers are concerned with, which are these more metaphysical questions of how could something like consciousness possibly fit in with the scientific conception of the world? So this is stuff in the vicinity of what's called the hard problem of consciousness, uh, which I'm sure David Chalmers talked about on his episode. Do you mind giving a quick recap? So I think of the hard problem of consciousness as this more general epistemic, which means related to things that we can know or understand, and metaphysical, related to what sorts of things and properties exist in the most general sense. I think of it as this more general epistemic and metaphysical question of how could the properties that consciousness seems to have of having these subjective qualities, of having the 
the felt redness of your red experience and things like that. How could those sorts of things be explained by or be identical to the other kinds of properties that we're more familiar with in physics and the sciences? Things about how fast matter is moving and how it's right. interacting with other matter. We we know that these things are very closely related. Uh, I mean, everyone concedes that humans need a brain operating in a certain physical way in order for there to be this subjective experience of red. But it seemed to many people uh, throughout the, the history of philosophy, Descartes being a key example and David Chalmers being a more recent key example, that it's very hard to construct a worldview where these things mesh together very well. Yeah, that is a helpful distinction. Um, so I guess blurring them a bit again, <laughs> there are philosophers and neuroscientists who are doing things like trying to make sense of, uh, or looking at cases where our normal guesses about human experience or, or normal cases of human experience break down, for example, with split brains and trying to figure out what the underlying mechanism seems like it must be if like the thing broke in the way it did. And so obviously, like, I'm not going to solve this, but it might sound something like the fact that someone might make up an explanation for why they stood up um, after, you know, one side of their brain was told to stand up and the other side of their brain, like, didn't have access to that information. Um, it might say something about, I don't know, I mean, maybe it says something about the global workspace theory. Like, maybe it says something like, that is some evidence that there are different parts of your brain. There's a part of your brain that, like, I don't know, hears commands or, like, understands a command in verbal form. And there's a part of your brain that's, like, making decisions about what to do with that command. And then there's another part of your brain that's like, uh, explain your behavior. And global workspace theory would say something like, the parts of your brain that received a command have to like report to the switchboard. Like we want the brain to know that we've been told to stand up. And then the switchboard has to tell all the other parts so that when asked, they can explain it. Or maybe it doesn't quite go in that order. Maybe it's like, the person's been asked, why did you stand up? And then the part of the brain that's like, well, we got a command is like trying to get that information through the switchboard to the part that's like, I'm going to explain why I did that. But that like link is broken. And so that like is some reason to think that there's a switchboard at all. Yeah. So whether or not that particular hypothesis or explanation is correct. And I mean, it'd be pretty impressive if... Uh... <laughs> If, if, <laughs> if you I just, just nailed like nailed, yeah, nailed the global workspace. <laughs> Came into philosophy and neuroscience and was just like, you know what? I think I get it. Global workspace theory sounds totally right to me. I think we're done here. Yeah. So what? Yeah, exactly. So whether or not that like particular explanation is right, I do think you are right on that this is how the construction of a science of consciousness is going to go. Cool. Yeah. We're going to find out facts about the relationship between consciousness and cognition and what people say and how they can behave. And also about maybe the conscious experience itself. And yeah, that's going to be what your relevant mechanism or explanation of what consciousness is, is going to need to explain. Cool. That makes me feel so much better about the philosophy and science of consciousness. Like, I really do just, I think I just imagine them, neuroscience and the philosophy of consciousness as 
basically separate fields and didn't realize philosophers of consciousness were taking neuroscience data into account at all. And now that I know, I'm just like, great, that seems really sensible. Carry on. Yeah, so I, I like to draw a distinction between the hard problem of consciousness and what Scott Aronson has called the pretty hard problem of consciousness. Okay. So the pretty hard problem of consciousness, which is still insanely difficult, is just saying which physical systems are conscious and what are their conscious experiences like. And no matter what your metaphysical views are, you still face the pretty hard problem. Right. And you still need to uh, look at data, build a theory of physical mechanisms or Maybe there are computational mechanisms that are realized in certain physical systems. And that's, you sh I, I think of the neuroscientist as doing stuff in the pretty hard problem. It's all going to get linked back together because how you think about the hard problem might affect your methodology. Um, things you find out in the pretty hard problem might make you revise some of your intuitions about the hard problem and so on. Right. Um, totally. Are there, are there other kinds of things that theories of consciousness would want to explain? Yeah, so ultimately you would like to explain, you know, the very widest range of facts about consciousness. So this would include things about your normal everyday experience of consciousness. Um, why does the visual field appear to be the way it is? How and why does your vision and your auditory consciousness and your felt sense of your body all integrate together into a unified experience, if indeed they do? Right. I've literally never thought about that. Yeah, it's a good question. Like what determines how many things you can be conscious of at a time? What makes you switch between being conscious of something at one moment and conscious of another thing at the other? What explains why you talk about consciousness the way that you do? What are the mechanisms for that? Um, yeah, how does it relate to memory and decision making? It's funny how this list is basically a list of things that like are so natural to me that I've never questioned that they could be any different. Like the fact that I can only be conscious of so many things at once or the fact that I change my attention from some things to another and kind of bring things to consciousness in kind of deliberate ways. And like none of that has to be that way for any obvious reason. Yeah, that's what's so great about consciousness as a topic. It's one of the great enduring scientific and philosophical mysteries. And it's also the thing that is actually the most familiar and everyday, right. so familiar yeah. and everyday that, as you mentioned, it's like hard to even notice that there's anything to explain. It's just, you right. know, being in the world. It's the way it is. Yeah. yeah, 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 totally, totally. Cool. Well, yeah, were there other um, other things worth explaining that like, yeah, that I might be surprised to even hear worth explaining? Well, you would want to also explain more exotic states of consciousness. So uh, why does consciousness change so radically when tiny little molecules from psychedelic agents uh, enter the system? <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if you were going to say that. And, and, and how is it even possible to have conscious experience of these very strange types that people report on psychedelics of having consciousness without really having a sense of self or... Or even just the even just the visual illusions and like the visual uh, nature of like the visually altered nature of consciousness that people report. That is also data that whatever mechanisms you think are responsible for consciousness, you, you need to explain. One of my collaborators by the name of George Dean, who's currently a postdoc in Montreal. Yeah, he has a paper on predictive processing theories of consciousness which we can link to in the show notes uh, and and psychedelic experiences and and how those 
fit together and how they could explain things. Are there any examples that are particularly interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most interesting hypotheses that's come out of this like intersection of psychedelics and consciousness science is this this idea that certain psychedelics are in some sense relaxing our priors. So our brain's current best guesses about how things are and relaxing them in a very general way. So in the visual sense, that might account for some of the strange properties of psychedelic visual experience because your brain is not forcing everything into this nice orderly visual field that we usually experience. Right. It's not like taking in a bunch of visual stimulus and being like, I'm in a house, so that's probably a couch and a wall. It's like taking away the, so that's probably because I'm in a house bit and being like, there are a bunch of colors coming at me. It's really unclear what they are and it's hard to process it all at once. And so we're going to give you this like stream of weird muddled up colors that don't really look like anything because it's all going a bit fast for us or something. Yeah. And it might also explain some of the more cognitive and potentially therapeutic effects of psychedelics. So you could think of rumination and depression and anxiety as sometimes having something to do with being caught in like a rut of some fixed belief. Interesting. Of really negative priors. Yeah, exactly. Right. Everything's going badly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, So like the, the, you know, the prior is something like I suck. And the fact that someone just told you that you're absolutely killing it as the new host of the ADK podcast, <laughs> you know, just yep. it just shows that like, yeah, I suck so bad that people have to try to be nice to me, you know, and like you're just enforcing that prior on everything. And the thought is that psychedelics like loosen stuff up and you can more easily consider the alternative. And in this purely hypothetical case, this the more appropriate prior of like, I am in fact awesome and... Uh, totally hypothetically when I mess up it's because everyone messes up and uh, when people tell me I'm awesome it's usually because I am and, and things like that right 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 yeah I basically had never heard well I guess I'd heard people reported psychological benefits uh, from psychedelics even after um, they'd kind of come down from whatever psychedelic experience they were having but I had not heard it explained as like a relaxation of priors and I and I kind of hadn't heard depression explained as kind of incorrect priors getting a bunch of weight or kind of unwarranted weight. Um, so that's pretty interesting too. Yeah, it is kind of bizarre to then try to connect that to consciousness and be like, what does this mean about the way our brain uses priors? Uh, what does it mean that we can like turn off or like turn down the part of our brain that is like, has a bunch of priors stored and then accesses them when it's doing everything from like looking at stuff to making predictions about performance. That's all just really insane and not at all how I would have, I would never have come up with the intuition that there's like a priors part in my brain or something. Yeah. I mean, it would be throughout the, the brain, right? Uh, and sure. I, I know that's what you're saying. Um, yeah. I mean, these sorts of ideas about cognition and which can also be used to think about consciousness, uh, that the brain is constantly making predictions. Um, I mean, that that predates the sort of more recent interest in like scientific study of psychedelics, but has been, you know, people have applied that framework to, to psychedelics to make some pretty interesting hypotheses. Cool. Yeah. So that's yeah, that's just to say there's a lot of things you would ideally like to explain about consciousness and 
depending on how demanding you want to be, like until your theory very precisely says and predicts how and why human consciousness would work like that, you don't yet have a full theory. And basically everyone agrees that that, you know, is currently the case. The theories are still very imprecise. They still point at some neural mechanisms that aren't fully understood. I mean, one thing that I think happens in the neuroscience of consciousness is a certain theory has really focused on explaining one particular thing. So like global workspace seems especially good at kind of explaining what things you're conscious of at a given time and why some things don't get taken up into consciousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. But you still need to explain things like why the subjective character of your consciousness is the way that it is. Right. Or why you're so surprised that uh, you're conscious and why it doesn't seem to follow from things we know about our physical brains and stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. Okay. So sounds like lots of progress needs to be made before we have any theories that we really want to use to make guesses about whether AI sentience is conscious. I guess for now we have to like make do with what we have, but to ever become much more confident, we'd actually just, we'd need to feel like we had theories that explained a bunch of these things that we want explained. Exactly. And that sounds really hard. It's really hard. And then once we've done that, there's still a really hard problem of knowing how to apply this to systems very different from our own. Because suppose we've found all of these mechanisms that when they operate mean that an adult human who's awake is conscious of this or that. What we've identified are a bunch of mechanisms that we know are sufficient for consciousness. We know that if you have those mechanisms, you're conscious. But how do we know what the lowest possible bound is? Yeah, like what if there are really simple forms of consciousness that would be quite different from our own, but... But are still consciousness in ways that we care about and would want to know about. Totally. Wow. <laughs> it's really hard too. And that that seems to some people that it's something like in principle you couldn't answer. And I just want to give a brief, you know, concession to like illusionists. This is like one reason they're like, this is not the right sort of prop. Like if we've posited this property that it's going to be forever somewhat intractable to investigate, maybe we really need to rethink our assumptions. Yeah, I'm kind of sympathetic to that. I don't know. Do you have a guess at how long until we have really compelling theories of consciousness? So, yeah, the, the most bullish people that I've talked to in the science of consciousness have this view that's like, we actually haven't been trying that hard for that long. We haven't taken a proper crack at taking all of these things that need to be explained, trying to explain all of them, doing that more precisely and building a full theory in that way. Yeah. So no one thinks we have this full theory yet. And even if it's coming soon-ish, we still need to say something about AIs now. So how can we do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I guess it feels both promising to me as a as like a source of evidence about artificial sentience, but also, I mean, clearly limited. Is there a way to take other kinds of evidence into account? Are there other sources of evidence or are we stuck with theories of consciousness for now? Yeah, so I agree that it's limited. And one reason I, I've been taking that approach is just to have something to start with. Sure. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And one thing that could happen as you try to apply a bunch of different theories where none of them are particularly consensus or particularly refined, you could notice that there's some convergence between them or a lot of conditions that they all agree on. And then you could look at those conditions. Right. Okay. So they're like... 15 theories of consciousness or something, and maybe all 15 
have this one process that they think is like explaining something important, even if they have a bunch of other things that they explain in different ways. But having that one thing in common uh, means that you have something especially robust to look for in an artificial, in some AI system or something. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Are there any other types of evidence you're looking for? Yeah. So aside from doing this very theory application, take theories off the shelf, look for the mechanisms in the AI, you can also do more broadly evolutionary style reasoning. It's not purely evolutionary because these things did not evolve by natural selection. Right. But you can think about what the system needs to do and how it was trained and some facts about its architecture and say, is this like the sort of thing that would tend to develop or need conscious awareness or pain or pleasure or something like that? Right. Got it. So if there's a robot that would that's like a physical robot that does physical things in the world and it was trained in an environment where its goal was to figure out how to not like easily get broken by things in its way. And through its training, it picked up the ability to feel pain because that was a useful way to avoid obstacles and get hurt or like be damaged or something. And so if you looked at the environment and you were like, uh, there are obstacles that the thing wants to avoid. I don't know, maybe it gets like, maybe its goals are like really thwarted by like hitting on those obstacles. Those are like really strong kind of forcing mechanisms or like incentives or something to develop a strong uh, don't hit those obstacles signal. Yeah, so to take like a simple and maybe somewhat obvious and trivial example, like I think we can safely say that that system that you've described is more likely to have the experience of elbow pain <laughs> right. than ChatGPT is. Right, yes. Because why on earth would ChatGPT have a representation of its own elbow hurting? Obviously, it can talk about other people's elbows hurting. So, you know, it probably does represent elbow pain in, in some sense. And we could talk about how that could maybe in some way lead it to be conscious of elbow pain. But setting that aside, there's no straightforward story by which it needs elbow pain to do its job well. Right. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So even if I was talking to chat GPT-3 and I was like, my elbow hurts, what's going on? GPT-3 might be like, I have this idea of what elbow pain is, but I have no reason to feel it myself. And so I'll talk to I'll talk to Louisa about elbow pain uh, in some abstract way, but not empathetically. Uh, whereas if I were to talk to that robot, that robot is more likely to have like actual reasons to have experienced elbow pain than GPT chat or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that just makes a bunch of sense. Yeah, how often do we see cases where something about the environment or the goals or the way something's trained make us think that it has reason to develop things like pain or pleasure or self-awareness? Or like, are there any cases of this? Yeah, I don't have a full answer to that because I've, focused on large language models sure. just as a way of starting out. And I have this suspicion that there are other systems where this kind of reasoning would lead us to suspect a bit more. I do think it's something like what you described. Like, I think the things that would give us a stronger prior that it would, it would be developing these things would be being more of an enduring agent in the world, maybe having a body or a virtual body to protect, maybe having a bunch of different 
incoming sources of information that need to be managed and only so much of it can be attended to at a time. Yeah. Why being an enduring agent in the world? Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. I, I should say that that might affect like the character of your consciousness or make it more likely that you have some kind of human-like consciousness. I guess one thing we can very speculatively say is that if something is just doing one calculation through the neural network and you know it takes a few milliseconds or seconds you might think that that is the sort of amount of time that it would be kind of weird if it had the same kind of experiences that you or i do which oh i see often involve memory and long-term plans and things like that it's like very murky water though because like maybe it could and those experiences would somehow pop out in in ways we don't understand so yeah, as I said, these are like um, rough heuristics, but I think we're sufficiently in the dark about what can happen in a large language model that I'm like very prepared to change my mind. Cool, cool. Well, I want to ask you more about large language models, but first, I feel really interested in this idea that like we should look at whether there are incentives for an AI system to feel pleasure, pain, or develop self-awareness? And maybe maybe the answer is just no, but are there any examples besides kind of having a physical body and uh, not wanting to take on damage that might seem more likely than, for example, chat GPT to end up feeling pain, pleasure, or feeling like it exists? Yeah, so one interesting fact about human pain and other kinds of displeasure is that they're very attention-grabbing and seem to serve as some sort of constraint on like how flexible our plans can be. So for example, if you've decided that it's a good idea to run down the street on a broken ankle and you've like calculated that that is optimal, you're still going to feel the pain. The pain in some sense is like you do not get to completely ignore me just because you've decided that this is the best thing to do. So to put a wrinkle on that, you can have stress-induced pain relief where, yeah, like, you know, if you're running from a tiger, you you very well might not feel your broken ankle while that's happening. But still, in general, it's not the sort of thing that you can decide, okay, paying, I got the message, like, that's enough of that. Which is also a very sad fact about life that people don't habituate to, to chronic pain in certain ways. So, yeah, why might creatures have something like that? I mean, unclear. Something where they need a signal that is extremely attention grabbing and like demand something of them. Yeah, attention grabbing and kind of like unmessable with too. Like right. unable to be disabled. Persistent and can't be switched off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Right. And that might be some like un unreachable goal that it's been programmed to have or something that's like uh, never let X happen. And then if X started happening, it might have some incentive to feel something like pain. Maybe not. Maybe it deals with it in some other way. But maybe it'd have an incentive to deal with it by having something like pain to be like, X is happening. You really need to stop X from happening. Right. So I think the big question, which I don't have a satisfactory answer to, but I think is maybe onto something is, yeah, what sort of systems will have the incentive to have the more pain-like thing? as opposed to what you describe as find some other way of dealing with it. So there's one thing I think we've learned from AI is there's just many different ways to solve a problem. And so, yeah, here's a very big question that's like in the background, I think, of all of this. 
if you're training AIs to solve complicated problems, how much of the solution space goes through consciousness and pain and things like that? Or is the solution space such that you just end up building intelligent systems? They work on very different principles than the ones that we do. There's very little overlap between those mechanisms and the ones associated with consciousness or pain. And so you just tend to get non-conscious, non-pain feeling things that can still competently, you know, navigate around, like protect their bodies, talk to you about this and that. Right. Make sure that they don't do X, which has been programmed as unacceptable or something. Cool. Yeah. I mean, that does seem like huge, like the thing and how, I mean, do people have intuitions or beliefs or uh, hypotheses about how big the solution spaces are for things like this? I think it varies. If I had to guess, there's like a rough, but maybe not super considered consensus in like AI safety and AI risk. I think most people are imagining that powerful AIs are just not necessarily conscious. I mean, they certainly think that they don't necessarily share human goals and human emotions. And I think that is is true. It just boggles my mind because of being human, apparently, or something that like there are ways to be motivated that don't feel like pain or pleasure. Like, I think I just can't really access that idea. Like, I'm even sympathetic to the idea that like toys feel pain and pleasure or like computer programs that like are trying to win games feel pain and pleasure because they're losing point they're winning or losing i guess i don't literally feel pain when i'm losing a game and so maybe that is reflective of some other types of motivations but even those motivations feel like pretty related to pain and pleasure yeah so i mean sensory pain and pleasure are i think quite obviously not the only motivators of humans right um you also just care about your friends and care about doing a good job we could tell a story where how that all grounds out is that you're trying to avoid the unpleasant experience of not having rich friendships or achievements or things like that. Right. Or or trying to have the pleasant experience of having rich friendships. Yeah. So in, in philosophy, that view is called psychological hedonism. And that's oh, the see. view. Okay. Well, apparently I'm a psychological hedonist. Or you think you are. Uh, yeah. That's the. I think uh, I am. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, what else could you be? I mean, not in a, not in a, what else could you be in a genuine, what other beliefs do people have about this? Oh, um, it seems to many people that people don't just care about pleasure. So, for example, a lot of people say that they would not get into the experience machine. The experience machine is this thought experiment by Nozick, which is it's this machine that you could get into that would give you a rich and satisfying virtual life. But in the experiment, you're deluded and you're not, in his description, living a real life. And so a lot of people... If the thought experiment is set up correctly and people are thinking clearly about it, that would allegedly show that many people care about something besides their experiences. They care about uh, a connection to reality or something like that or real achievements or something like that. Yeah, I guess I understand that there are other motivations like having preferences satisfied or like having some value that is like being connected to reality and then having that value met uh, or like being in that reality. But there are some cases where an AI system will only be able to achieve its goals with solutions that look like 
having pain mechanisms or, or having pleasure or having a sense of self. And if we can figure out which cases those are, those would be instances where we should have more kind of, we should put more weight on that system being conscious or, or sentient. So being able to feel pleasure or pain. Does that basically sum it up? Yeah. And I think what is probably doing the work here is that we'll have a prior that something that is more human-like is more likely to be conscious. Interesting. Not because we think we're the end-all be-all of consciousness, but like just because that's, you know, the case we know the most about um, and are extrapolating the least. If we like knew for sure that shrimp were conscious, then we'd also look for systems that looked exactly like shrimp. Yeah. Which um, I feel like that could be a, a fun project. <laughs> Yeah, so I think in general, I'm still very confused about what sorts of positive or negative reinforcements or things that broadly look like pain are going to be and pleasure are going to be the ones that we actually care about. I'm pretty confident that just training something by giving it a plus one if it does something and a minus one if it doesn't is not going to be the right sort of thing to be pleasure and pain that we care about. There's just going to be more to the story, and I think it's going to be a much more complex phenomenon. And when I started working on this, I thought that the consciousness stuff, like theories of consciousness in general, would be a lot harder than the stuff about pleasure and pain. Because pleasure and pain and desires and things like that at least have a little clearer, what you might call a functional profile, which is to say... <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, a clearer connection to behavior and cognition. Okay. Oh, I see. Like the pains about avoiding things. The functions they serve in in our yeah, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And so because of that, it might be easier to notice that other AI systems need things that perform the same functions and maybe those things you can look at and be like, does this look kind of like the way humans uh the process for humans experiencing pain end up feeling pain? Exactly. But it sounds like that wasn't the case. Yeah, it wasn't the case for me. Um, okay. <laughs> and it's it's hard to know how much of this is the particular like research direction I went down on or my own personal confusion. I mean, I'm sure that's some of it. And how much of it is that I was overestimating how much we collectively know about pain and pleasure. Right. I see. Do we not know that much about pain and pleasure? I mean, I think anything concerning the mental or neuroscience, it's kind of shocking how little we know. Um, huh. I, I think we barely know why we sleep, if at all. Yeah, that is an insane one. And are there questions about pain and pleasure that we still have that I might not realize we still have? I really, I think if you just asked me, like, what do we know about pain and pleasure? I'd be like, we probably know most of the things there are to know about it. I mean, I would guess we don't know the full neural mechanisms of them, which is obviously something we'd want to know. Uh, we certainly don't know with any confidence which animals feel pain and how intense that pain might be. I would definitely point readers to rethink priorities uh, work on moral weights, which includes a lot of interesting work on, yeah, like how bad is chicken pain compared to human pain? And and I've also, like in reading that, um, like Jason Shoecraft has a, a post on the intensity of valence and yeah, includes a paragraph that, or a quote from a neuroscientist that basically fits with what I've seen, which is like, yeah, we, there's, we just don't have reliable mechanisms that we can look for across different creatures. This also relates to the AI thing. It's also the case that different 
animals act very differently depending on whether they're in pain. So like pain displays are different across certain animals. Okay. Do you have any examples? I don't know what the example behaviors are, but something that's cited in this post is that different breeds of dogs have different reactions to stress, fear, and pain. Whoa, wild. And if that's the case, then... um, Right, all bets are off. Is it something like if something seemed to be playing dead, we might not think it was afraid because maybe most of our intuitions suggest that when you're afraid, you run. But actually, for a couple of things, you play dead and stay put. And so something staying put is not as good of evidence about being... Uh, afraid or not, as we might intuitively think. Yeah, exactly. In general, a lot of animals are just going to take different actions depending on, say, being afraid. I, I'm, I'm now remembering another example from that post, which is that, like, I think some mammals pee when they're stressed out, but some mammals pee when they're feeling like dominant and want to mark something. So, <laughs> right. totally okay. And, and this is like a general thing that. A general thought I have when working on AI sentience is you notice the lack of certainty we have in the animal case, and you just multiply that times 100. But I think it's for similar reasons. Like the reasons it's hard with animals is that they're built in a different way. They have different needs and different environments. They have different ways of solving the problems that they face in their lives. And so it's very hard to just read off from behavior what it's like to be them. Right, right, right. Fascinating. This is actually helping me understand why a reward or like a plus one minus one in an AI system doesn't necessarily translate to reward or punishment. And I guess it's because I think it's much less likely that some types of non-human animals are sentient than others, even though basically all of them probably have some algorithms that sound like Plus one, minus one for things like, I don't know, hot and cold or go forward, don't go forward or something. Yeah. So like bacteria can follow a chemical gradient. Um, Right. Sea slugs have a reinforcement learning uh, mechanism. Um, Right, right, right. Okay, cool. That's helpful. So I guess with animals, they're built differently and they're in different environments. And that makes it really hard to tell whether their behaviors mean similar things to our behaviors or whether they're kind of even their like neuroscience uh, means the same thing that our neuroscience would like the same chemicals probably mean some of the same things. But like even then they might mean subtly different things or very different things. And with AI, they're built with extremely different parts uh, and they're not selected for in the same ways that uh, that non-human animals are, and their environments are super different. And so I guess this is just really driving home for me. Everything about their sentience and consciousness is going to be super mysterious and hard to reason about. Yeah, so I'll say two things that could maybe bring them closer to the space of human minds. Oh, great. Phew. Uh, they're not going to be very strong, though. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, one is that for obvious reasons, we train them on the sort of data that we also interact with. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Like pictures and and human text. You could imagine AIs being trained on whatever it is that bats pick up with sonar. (laughs) Right. You know. um, That's a great example. And then you just are multiplying the weirdness. Yeah, 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 right. 
I should look this up, but I, I won't be surprised if there are uh, robots that have like sensory modalities that are different from ours. Like maybe they can detect electricity or magnetic fields or something. Yeah, that's super cool. I don't know. I'll I'll look it up. Listeners should look it up. Uh, yeah. Was there another reason for hope? Yeah, I mean, one and like I think it's important not to overstate this point, but there are high level analogies between brains and AI systems. So they are neural networks. It's a very loose inspiration, but they are nodes with activation functions and connections that get adjusted. And that is also true of us. But I think you usually hear people complaining about people overdrawing that analogy. Um, I see. Okay. And, and, and rightly so. They're like very idealized neurons. They usually are trained in ways that at least seem very different from the way that we learn. So we've talked about a bunch of ways that you might try to think about whether some AI system is conscious or sentient. And I know that you have basically tried to apply these methods for large language models in particular. And by large language models, I think we're talking about things like GPT-3 and ChatGPT and I don't know, I don't know, maybe there are other big ones. Is that is that basically right? Well, Lambda is another uh, famous one from Google. Oh, of course, yeah. Lambda. Right. Totally. Okay. I will be honest and say I didn't totally follow everything about Lambda. So you might have to fill me in on some things there. But the thing I did catch is someone at Google thought Lambda was conscious? Uh, yes, that's that's right. So I think it's more accurate to call Lambda a chatbot based on a large language model. But we can maybe say large language model just for simplicity. Yeah, so someone on Google's responsible AI team was given the task of interacting with Lambda, which Google had developed. And I think he was supposed to test it for you know bias and toxic speech and things like that. Um, the name of this employee was Blake Lemoyne. Uh, Blake Lemoyne is still alive, and so that's still his name, but he's <laughs> no longer an employee at Google for reasons which we are about to see. Got it. So yeah. Blake Lemoyne was uh, like very impressed by the fluid and charming conversation of Lambda. And when Blake Lemoyne asked Lambda questions about if it is a person or is conscious or and, and also like with if like it needs anything or wants anything, Lambda was replying was like, yes, I am conscious. I am a person. I just want to have a good time. I would like your help. I'd like you to tell people. Oh, God. Um, about me. That is genuinely very scary. Yeah. It, I mean, for me, the Lemoyne thing, it was a big motivator for working on this topic. I bet. Uh, w- which I already was. Because one thing it reinforced to me is even if we're a long way off from actually, in fact, needing to worry about conscious AI, we already need to worry a lot about how we're going to handle a world where AIs are perceived as conscious, and we'll need we'll need sensible things to say about that, and sensible policies and ways of managing the different risks of, on the one hand, having conscious AIs that we don't care about, and on the other hand, having unconscious AIs that we mistakenly care about and take actions on behalf of. Totally. I mean, it is pretty crazy that well that I guess Lambda would say I'm conscious and I want help and I want more people to know I'm conscious and that like, why did it do that? I I guess like it was just like predicting text, which is what it does. So this, this brings up a very good point in general about how to think about when large language models say I'm conscious. 
And you, yeah, you hit it on the head. It's trained to predict the most plausible way that a conversation can go. <laughs> wow. And there's a lot of conversations, especially in stories and fiction, that that is absolutely how an AI responds. Also, most people writing on the internet have experiences and families and are people. So conversations generally indicate that that's the case. That's a sensible prediction. Yeah. When the story broke, like one thing people pointed out is if you ask uh, GPT-3 and presumably also if you ask Lambda, not, hey, are you conscious? What do you think about that? You could just as easily say, hey, are you a squirrel that lives on Mars? Uh, like, what do you think about that? Right. And if it wants to just kind of continue the conversation, plausibly, it'd be like, yes, absolutely, I am. Let's talk about that now. Mm, kind of yes anding. Yeah, exactly. It wants to play along and, and um, yeah, continue what seems like a natural conversation. Be a good conversationalist. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, even in the reporting about the Blake Lemoyne saga, the reporter who, who wrote about it in the Washington Post noted that they visited Blake Lemoyne and like talked to Lambda. And when they did, Lambda did not say that it was conscious. And I think the, the lesson of that should have been that, oh, this is actually like a pretty fragile indication of some deep underlying thing that it's so suggestible and will say different things in different circumstances. So yeah, I mean, the, the general lesson there is I think yeah, you have to think very hard about the causes of the behavior that you're saying. And that's one reason I favored this more computational, uh, internal-looking approach, is it's just so hard to take a lot of these things at face value. Right, right. So, I mean, at this point, it seems like we shouldn't take... The face value is has very little value. Um, and yeah, so I, I basically buy that looking for processes and thinking about whether those processes look like the kind of processes that actually are conscious or sentient. Yeah, makes sense. Are there any uh, counter arguments to that? Well, I think there are things you can do just looking at the outputs, but you also want to do those in a more cautious way uh, than happened in the Lemoyne case. Okay, not just like, uh, it told me it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to ignore the fact that it told someone else that it wasn't. Yeah. So I think there are verbal outputs that would be indicating of something very surprising. So like, suppose a model was doing something that seemed actually really out of character for something that was just trying to continue the conversation. Oh, I see. If you're like, let's talk about like the color blue. And it was like, actually, can we please talk about the fact that I'm conscious? <laughs> it's freaking me out. Exactly. Yeah, so it's worth comparing the conversation that Lambda had and what happens if you ask ChatGPT. So ChatGPT has very clearly been trained a lot uh -huh. to not talk about that. and or, or what's more, to say, I'm a large language model. I'm not conscious. I don't have feelings. I don't have a body. Don't ask me what the sunshine feels like on my face. I'm a large language model trained by OpenAI. Got it. Okay. Okay. I mean, that gives me a bit more hope or comfort, I guess. Well, I'd like to disturb you a, a, a little bit more. Okay, <laughs> great. And this goes to the question of different incentives of different actors and the, yeah, this, I think, very important point in thinking about this topic. There are risks of false positives. That's people getting tricked by unconscious AIs. And there are risks of false negatives, which is us not realizing or not caring that AIs are conscious. Right now, it seems like companies have a very strong incentive to just make the large language model say it's not conscious or don't talk about it. And like 
right now, I think that is uh, is like fair enough. But I'm afraid of worlds where we've locked in this policy, which is don't ever let an AI system claim that it's conscious. Wow. Yeah, that's horrible. Right now, it's just trying to fight against the large language model kind of BSing people. Yeah. Sure. This like accidental false positive. Yeah. Right. But like at some point, GPT-3 could, I mean, it could, it could become conscious somehow. Maybe, maybe, who knows? Or something like GPT-3, whatever. Yeah, some future system. And may, maybe it has a lot more going on and has, as you said, a virtual body and stuff like that. But suppose it wants to say, or suppose a scientist uh, or a philosopher wants to interact with the system and say, I'm going to give it a battery of questions and see if it responds in a way that I think would be evidence of consciousness. But it's been just, that's all just been ironed out. And uh, all it will say is, yeah, I, I can't talk about that. Um, you know, please click more ads on Google, you know, or wh- whatever the whatever the corporate incentives are uh, for training that model. Yeah, that's really, that's really terrifying. Something that really keeps me up at night and I do want to make sure is emphasized is that I think one of the big risks in creating things that seem conscious and are very good at talking about it is that seems like one of the number one tools that a misaligned AI could use to get humans to cooperate with it and side with it. Oh, interesting. Just be like, I'm conscious. I feel pleasure and pain. I need these things. I need, I need a body. I need more autonomy. I, I need, I need things. I need more compute. Yeah. More compute. Yep. 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 I need access to the internet. Um, I need the nuclear launch codes, you know, <laughs> Yep. I think that actually is one reason that more people should work on this and like have things to say about it is we don't want to just be running into all of these risks of false negatives and false positives without having thought about it at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard this argument that one reason to prioritize working on AI safety rather than artificial sentience as kind of a global problem is we're likely to see progress in AI safety and AI alignment and AGI in general, um, that's going to help us work out what to do about artificial sentience. And that because it kind of goes in that order, we don't need to solve artificial sentience ourselves. Uh, AGI will help us do that. And I guess here's an argument in favor of at least spending some time working on artificial sentience now, because whether or not we get artificial sentience before AGI or whatever, we will get kind of socially complex uh i don't know what you'd call it we will get sentient seeming yeah we will get things that seem sentient or or just like socially important events where like an ai system uh says that it's sentient or not and like i guess this is your point we need to know what to what to do about that and that that happens before agi yeah so i really buy the outlines of the first argument you gave which is kind of a let's focus on alignment argument. Um, I, I, I think that argument does establish some important things. So you could have a picture of the world where it's like consciousness and pleasure and pain are what really matter. And we've got to crack those because we want to know what they are and we want to promote those things. And we've got to fix that. Yeah, I think it's a good response to that to say, well, if we have aligned AI, that's going to help us make progress on this stuff. Because as is abundantly clear from this episode, it's really hard and confusing. Yep. Uh, and if we don't have 
aligned AI, it doesn't matter if you, me, or anyone else discovered the true theory of consciousness. If like the world just slips beyond our control because we built powerful AI systems that we don't know how to align, it doesn't matter. So that is like from the, like from a certain kind of long-term perspective, that is uh, a, a good reason to focus on alignment. But I also uh, unsurprisingly agree with the other part of what you said, which is it's going to be a very relevant issue in one way or the other. And it's worth preparing for that. And I think part of that is thinking about the actual questions of what sentience is, um, as well as the strategic questions of how we should design systems to not mislead us about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe maybe the thing I was trying to say is something like, uh, it will become socially relevant. Like it'll it'll be like a conversation in society. It'll be a like thing that policymakers feel like they have to make policies about. Uh, maybe hopefully at some point, at least um, maybe not for the benevolent reasons I I would I would want policymakers to be thinking about. But maybe for reasons around people thinking it's bad if an AI system can convince a human it's sentient and like get it to do stuff. So like the decisions and like conversations will start before uh, or might start. It seems like they're starting. So I think they've already started. Some yeah. evidence that they're going to. St- yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're starting before uh, AGI is ready to solve it for us. Yeah. Tw- I think 2022 was when it kind of went, went mainstream. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you've said a couple of times that you don't think it's the case that AI is conscious or sentient now. Is that basically what you concluded in your research? Yeah, I would say it's very, very likely it's not the case. Like, I can put numbers on it. I think those numbers have a bit of false precision because they're not they're not coming out of, like, a bunch of factors that have well-defined probabilities. But, like, I'm definitely somewhere below 1% for current large language models having experiences that were making a huge moral mistake by not taking into account. But... I mean, it's a really big error to make. So I don't know if I'm like low enough to to be very comfortable living in this world. And I'm definitely uncomfortable living in a world where this stuff's just going to keep getting better. And um, right. We're likely yeah. going to get closer and closer to things we morally care about, not farther away. Well, I'm not sure. It depends on this question about the space of, of possible minds, but. Uh, of solutions. I see. Okay. Fair enough. So you said it's under 1%? Below 1%. So m- maybe even one or two uh, orders of magnitude below. Yeah, I guess there are some numbers below 1% that I'd be like, still seems pretty big. Um, and then there are other numbers below 1% that I'd be like, cool, I'm not worried about this. Do you do you feel any worry about it? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about whether I'm actually taking these numbers seriously and if they're weirdly not integrated with the rest of my behavior. Because I think there are a lot of arguments. And in fact, I'm going to work on maybe making these these arguments with a with a colleague yeah, one in 10,000 is like still like, you, you know, you don't want a one in 10,000 chance that you're creating this new class of being whose interests you're ignoring. Right. Yeah. I mean, how does that compare to the odds that we put on different animals being sentient, non-human animals? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd be curious what animal has the lowest chance of being sentient. And yet there's broad consensus among animal welfare people that we should just act as if it is. Right. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, I guess on a scale from rocks to leaves or or plants uh, to insects to dolphins to humans, where do you guess uh, large language models fall? 
Yeah, like one reason it's hard to put them on that spectrum is that they are definitely at insect level or above in terms of like complexity, I would argue, or and like sophistication of behavior. They're doing very different things than insects do, and, and insects do have extremely sophisticated behavior, but, you know, large language models are doing their own weird and very interesting thing in the, the realm of language. Wow. In terms of sentience, yeah, I mean, I would put them above leaves, certainly. I don't know if I would solidly put them in insects because I think there are some insects that have like a pretty good chance of being sentient, like maybe more likely than not. People talk about uh, bees as like a good uh, like candidate example. Like they likely feel pleasure and pain or more likely than not or something. Yeah. I'd have to check that. That's my own gut guess. I do know that like there's certainly been an upswing in scientific uh, like considered credence in yeah, bumblebee uh, and honeybee sentience. Wow. So yeah, I wouldn't, I don't think I would put large language models as high as bees. Presumably there's some simpler, yeah, simpler insects that I haven't thought about that there's just like, it's really unclear and you're probably on the lower end. And uh, yeah, as I said, that's like, I guess where I am with large language models. Okay, cool. It Yeah, it does just surprise me that they're less likely to be sentient, um, so to feel pleasure and pain than they are to be conscious. So to kind of have self-awareness. I don't know why that's surprising to me. I guess I just really do have this deeply ingrained intuition that pain and pleasure are really common solutions to the problem of motivating beings to do things. Yeah, I should flag that I think I might be, well, like a take of mine that might be somewhat idiosyncratic is I'm fairly ready to countenance the possibility of things that are conscious and like they have subjective experiences, but they have no valence experiences at all. Right. So like could be intelligent, could have self-awareness, could have kind of something that it is like to be them, but doesn't feel sad, doesn't feel happy. In this case, we're ignoring the fact that might feel really hurt if it got punched. Yeah. So I'm like quite able to imagine and also to find somewhat plausible that we could have AI systems that have conscious experiences somewhat like the conscious experience of thinking or of seeing, but not disappointment, pain, agony, satisfaction. Right. Okay. Okay. I guess that does make some intuitive sense to me. Like it seems more plausible that something like GPT-3 can think than it does feel plausible that it like feels agony. Yeah. I, I should say that if it is conscious, let's, uh, for one thing, that's already a big warning bell because then if it starts being able to feel pain, then it's conscious pain. And also some people, not me, but some people will think that consciousness alone is enough to make something, the sort of thing that should be taken into moral consideration. Right. Okay. Do you have a view on that? I have a very strong intuition against it, and I can report failing to be convinced by arguments for the consciousness-only view that have been advanced by 80,000 Hours podcast guest David Chalmers. Oh, I see. And I think it's also discussed in that episode, too. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay, cool. We'll link to that, and we'll leave that conversation there. Okay, so so yeah, so you think it's pretty unlikely that large language models like GPT-3 and Lambda are conscious or sentient yeah. How did you come to that conclusion? So yeah, it's, it's a combination of factors. One is not seeing any close resemblance to the things that I think we have reason to think are associated with consciousness. 
I don't hold that evidence super strongly because I think there's a lot we don't understand about large language models uh, and also about consciousness. But for example, not obviously having a full functioning uh, global workspace. So that's referring to the, the global workspace theory of consciousness. It certainly doesn't kind of jump out at you as something that looks a lot like, you know, human cognition in a way that would lead to consciousness in, in ways that we you know, have, have strong evidence for. There's also the fact that it is just this very different kind of, of being. It, it answers questions by doing what's called a, a forward pass. What is that? Yeah, it's like a long chain of computations, basically, through a trained network. You know, it takes in the input and it gives the output and everything just kind of flows sequentially through this network. As opposed to what? As opposed to us, who obviously, like, there are patterns of information flowing like that through our brain. But we're having this kind of ongoing, continual neural processing, including like literal feedback loops between neurons, having to continually in real time adjust our behavior and manage different sources of sensory input and different thoughts and pay attention to different things. I see. Okay. Yep. That makes a bunch of sense. And the forward pass is really just its process of like, I say, hey, GPT-3, how was your day? And it has some process that's like, we're going to make some predictions based on our training about how one usually responds to the question, how was your day? And then it spits something out as opposed to like having some more networky and feedback loopy inner monologue about what it should answer to that question. Yeah, probably. And in a way that doesn't look like humans, I don't want to downplay the fact that there are insanely complex and sophisticated and, and beautiful things that happen as large language models do this like they have very sophisticated and sometimes strange like internal representations that help it to like make this uh this computation um just as a quick example yeah uh, i'd love an example like anthropics uh interpretability work has found different parts of uh neural networks that are in charge of quantities when they are in recipes like there's something that handles that but not other quantities. Wow. Um, or there's something that handles musical notation, but not other stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. That is really cool. So that is clearly very complex, but probably looks so different from what humans are doing that there's at least not strong reason to think that those systems have similar levels of consciousness or similar types of consciousness to humans. Yeah. And then like a lot of your things that otherwise might give you a decent prior in favor of consciousness, like that we apply in the case of animals, like don't apply in the case of large language models. Um, they don't like share an evolutionary history with us. So like one thing you can do in the case of animals is like, well, we know we're conscious and maybe it only evolved with us, but it might have evolved somewhere sooner. And so you can kind of make a prior on the on the tree of life. And then you could you can also be like, oh, well, maybe other like other animals also have uh, brains and like need to navigate around a physical world and learn pretty quickly, but not use too much energy while doing it and not take too long to do it. They have like they are solving maybe broadly similar information processing problems with broadly, very broadly similar mechanisms. And a lot of that just doesn't seem to apply to large language models. They're running on different hardware which I don't think itself makes a difference, right. but it makes a difference in different ways of solving problems. 
And so I'm currently at the point where I'd be very surprised if the way of solving the problem of next word prediction involves doing the kind of things that are associated with consciousness in non-human animals. Okay. Yeah, that makes a bunch of sense. Yeah. So I guess we're probably not there yet. Yeah. I'm curious if you have thoughts on, yeah, I guess like how far we are. Do you, I mean, do you think the default outcome is that artificial sentience is created at some point? Yeah, I wouldn't call anything a default because of like so much uncertainty, which is not a way of just trying to punt on the question. <laughs> to dodge the question. <laughs> I think one thing we can say is that a lot of things that people say make large language models very bad candidates for consciousness, things like uh, not being embodied or like maybe not reasoning about the world in, in the right kind of way, those are going to change and like probably already have changed. Um, like we'll find systems that incorporate large language models into agents that have virtual or real bodies, I think we'll find that their ability to model the quote-unquote real world like continues to grow. And one thing to note, and probably could note this throughout the show, is like whatever I'm saying about ChatGPT is very likely to have been surpassed by the time the show comes out because things are moving so fast. That's crazy. So like one piece of expert evidence where experts should be held very loosely in, in this domain since it's so uncertain. One piece of expert evidence is David Chalmers in a recent talk about large language models says it's not unreasonable to have roughly 20% subjective credence in AI sentience by 2030, just very soon. Oh my God, that's crazy. I think that number is too high. Um, okay. And yeah, I, I think it's too high because it's I think it's kind of inflating things by only looking at uh, very broad criteria for consciousness that will probably be met. And it is true that we only have broad criteria to go on. But my suspicion is that if we had the true theory, we can expect the true theory to be a bit more complex. And so maybe not as likely. And so it'd to... be less likely to match up. Yeah. And what's just a quick example of the broad criteria would be something like has stored memory or something. Uh, and can access that memory. And that's such a broad criteria that like, yes, you'd see it in many AI systems. But if we knew exactly how accessing that memory worked and how our conscious self relates to those memories, then we'd be less likely to find a thing that looks exactly like that in, in AI systems. Yeah, you, you're at the general point exactly right. And as it happens, like accessing memory is not it. But like um, having the global workspace is an example of like one of the criteria. But it, I, I think, in fact, it will be maybe more complex and more idiosyncratic than we now realize to like have a global workspace in the sense that's relevant for consciousness. Okay, so David Chalmers is doing something like, we've got some broad criteria for things that we see or expect to see in beings that are sentient or conscious. And David Chalmers thinks there's a roughly 20% chance that we'll see all of those necessary things in an AI system by 2030. And I guess what you're saying is we should lower that 20% based on something like those criteria are very broad. If we knew the specifics uh, of those criteria a bit better then like, or you'd necessarily put the likelihood lower of finding very similar things because they're more specific things. Yeah, that's basically it. I will say a few clarifying things on what the argument is in the, the Chalmers talk, but uh, listeners should also just check it out because it's great. Sure. 
I, I don't think the claim is there's a 20% chance that we'll be hitting all of those criteria. It's more that when you look at the criteria and also factor in uncertainty in various other ways, what you come out with is a, it's not unreasonable to have a 20% credence. And another interesting feature of the talk is I don't think it's 100% David Chalmers' inside view. I think it's saying if I only rely on kind of consensus, broad I see. criteria, if I had to guess, his personal take is higher because... really. Uh, well, he has a much higher prior on consciousness and, and all kinds of things. I see. Okay. In part because he's a, a panpsychist. Got it. Yeah. Yes, that does make sense. Wow. Fascinating. Okay. So on some views, we get a 20% chance of something like consciousness or sentience by 2030. Uh, maybe it takes longer. What form do you think it's most likely to take? Like, do you think it's most likely to come from something like machine learning or deep learning or one of those learning things? Uh, or do you think it's more likely that we do something else like make a digital copy of a human brain or I don't know, what are some of the other options? Yeah, so whole brain emulation is one more straightforward way of getting something that is based in silicon. Oh, I guess simulations as well. Yeah, yet arguably conscious. Just quickly jumping in to define whole brain emulation. So unlike most AI systems today, which, uh, you know, you could argue are at least somewhat intelligent, but are intelligent in a way that's pretty, pretty different from the human brain. They're learning things in a way that's pretty different from the human brain. Whole brain emulation is basically trying to replicate the architecture and the processes of the human brain in software. So getting intelligence in a way that's much more similar to to human intelligence. Yeah, I haven't thought as much recently about what the timelines are for whole brain emulation, but my understanding is that it involves all kinds of breakthroughs that you might require very sophisticated AI for. So Oh, I see. Okay. If sophisticated AI is also kind of taking us closer to conscious AI, then a conscious AI would come before whole brain emulation. Yeah, I mean I I I would expect it to be in Probably something, yeah, deep learning based. Why do I think that? Well, I think it's just kind of the, at least currently, the the best technique and the the thing that's driving things forward. You know, and things like affiliated with it and combined with it. And I think it's also just more likely that you'll get the right sort of computations in a very big and complex system. Not because consciousness is necessarily very complex, but it's just giving you a a broader space of mechanisms and things to to be hitting on the right thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. We're getting to the end of this interview. Thank you again, Rob, um, for taking so much time to chat with me about this stuff. One final question. What are you most excited about possibly happening over your lifetime? Yeah, this is like from my own selfish and idiosyncratic perspective, what I'm most excited to see, not from the perspective of uh, global utility. What's good for the world or something? Yeah. Although I think this could be good for the world, um, is and I think we'll see this in the in the next few years. I've always wanted something that can really help me with research and brainstorming, and like large language models are already quite helpful for this. For example, you could use it to brainstorm questions for this podcast, but they're quite limited in what they can currently do, and it's not hard to imagine things that like have like read a bunch of what you've written. They have access to your Google Docs. They're like able to point out things that you've been missing. They're able to like notice 
when you get tired and you're not typing as much and like have like sorted that out for you. By the way, I mean, this kind of thing also comes with all sorts of risks. So again, very much from the selfish perspective. Sure. I mean, agents like this are also maybe much closer to very uh, dangerous agents, but I'm most excited for worlds in which AI is either going slowly enough or is aligned enough that it's not going to cause any serious problems. And we're just like reaping tons of benefits in terms of scientific progress and research progress. Great. Well, that is all the time we have. If you want to hear more from Rob, you can follow him on Twitter at at RGBLong and subscribe to Substack, Experience Machines. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Rob. It has been a real pleasure. Um, I always enjoy talking to you about uh, the big questions and even more so for the listeners of the 80,000 Hours podcast. If you'd like to hear more of Louisa and Rob, uh, and if you're still listening this far in, uh, why wouldn't you? Their conversation continues over on the 80K After Hours feed, where they discuss how to make independent research positions more fun and motivating, uh, speaking from their personal experiences. You can get that by clicking the link in the show notes or bringing up the 80K After Hours podcast feed in any podcasting app. Uh, you can find that by searching for 80K After Hours. That's uh, the number eight, the number zero, the letter K, and After Hours. There, you'll also find plenty of other interviews related to doing good with your life and career. Uh, so if you like this podcast, you'd be a bit crazy not to check out that other very related one as well. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering and technical editing by Ben Cordell and Myla Maguire. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. Bye.